0: Scott Sheffield. It is an absolute pleasure to sit down with you. I have been thinking a lot about the importance of Remembrance Day and trying to make the information more accessible. I don't know about other people, but for me growing up, it was very hard to connect the wars, um, our involvement, the whys, to what I was doing at these ceremonies. And if I'm being honest, I, I didn't take the ceremonies as seriously as I think I should have. And I'm hoping that we can kind of get into the background as to how this came about, uh, what made you interested in this research, and the impact that it's had on you, but also put this into a context of how it impacted Indigenous people, because I think that that's a really interesting aspect to add in when we're having these conversations about reconciliation, what that looks like. I think our involvement in World War II is something I haven't heard as much about, and I think that that's such an accessible way for people to get interested in the topic. So I'm hoping you could start with a brief introduction of your background
1: and then we can get into uh, the other topics. Sure, happy to Aaron and uh, thank you for having me. Um, In terms of my background, I'm I'm an Associate Professor of History at the University of the Fraser Valley. Uh, I originally grew up in in Cranbrook and, uh, and then came to Victoria and then on to Ontario to complete my education and then as a young itinerant uh, academic we traveled around quite a bit in 2000 we left ontario to go to calgary for a year and then after that to victoria and then to new zealand for five months and then back to victoria and then i actually left my family in victoria for a 10-month contract in kamloops and uh and and then finally was hired on at the university of victoria on a permanent basis uh or the University of Fraser Valley in 2005. So we moved to uh, to Chilliwack in 2005, and I've been here ever since. Can you tell us about
0: how that came about? Because I did read an article, I think in the Chilliwack Progress, that talked a little bit about um, how funny it all kind of started for you. So could you tell us a little bit about that story?
1: Yeah, after after my wife and I finished our bachelor's degrees, uh, we weren't married at that stage, but we were engaged, and we decided we'd take the year off work for a while then go to Europe. And so we were backpacking around Europe and I'd sent applications out to grad schools for a master's programs in Calgary, uh, Wilfrid Laurier, New Brunswick and Victoria. So four different programs. But the replies didn't start coming in until we were overseas. And so I had my mail all coming to my my uh, wife's parents house and uh, and all he was collecting, Kirsten's dad was collecting all the uh, replies. And we were on a pay phone i think in southern france or northern italy i think it was southern france and didn't have very long to talk to them and he said okay here's the deal i've got these three replies this is you know there's this much scholarship support for here there's this much here there's none there and calgary rejected you like what do you want to do and i sort of had 30 seconds to think okay because i would proposed a different topic for every place i was going to go because you always propose a topic that suits the people that the specialist there That you would like to work with and um and it just made sense for a variety of reasons to to choose to stay at uvic and that was the one place that the topic i'd proposed was to explore the issues around indigenous people in the second world war and if i'd chosen to go to wilfrid laurier that year instead i would have been doing something entirely different and i would never have found this topic you know that has in many ways come to define my my at least my academic career and what was that process like? What
0: did that excite you? what What made you choose that that topic area?
1: I mean, it's an interesting question. In this would have been the late eighties, early nineties, when I was an undergraduate at Uvic, and I was always interested in military history in particular, and that's what I took a, as much of as I could during my undergraduate years. and uh, And as I started to get interested in the idea of going on into academia and doing a master's and a PhD. I was told at the time, "Look, nobody will ever hire you in Canada to teach military history. Military history was a bit of a marginalized subject." By the by, the nineteen eighties and nineties, uh, there was a real sort of revolution in the in the discipline of history in the sixties and seventies—a social history revolution—and old history that looked at dead white powerful men who were usually either politicians, business leaders, or generals was largely rejected. And historians became much more interested in looking at the vast majority of other people that made up society, so you know women's history became increasingly and then gender history uh history of indigenous peoples began to really you know gain a lot of traction in the nineteen sixties seventies, and eighties working class peoples uh immigrant communities, and so history became much more diverse. but in the process, military history was kind of ejected from the accepted mainstream of history, if you will so the odds of me getting hired in a you know university to teach this was pretty slim as it was as I was told and the 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 joke in the military history fraternity was you had to use the Klingon cloaking device you you would do something that was either social or cultural history until you got tenure and then you could decloak and say actually i 've had an epiphany, I want to study military history wow uh, and but i didn 't want to do that i I, I wanted to Still stay connected to the thing that I was passionate about. And so I began to look around the edges of military history and the ways in which it connected to some of these other fields within the his discipline of history, like in this case, indigenous history. And I, I sort of looked briefly around, and there was almost nothing published on indigenous participation in the Second World War. And so that seemed to me. Maybe a really interesting place where I can stay connected to military history, but build bridges between it and, you know, other branches of social history at the same time.
0: Right. So that sounds really interesting to me that you're saying that we've moved away from that because I do feel like my understanding of what the sacrifices were, how they impacted our society, that that was the part I felt like I missed from a lot of my education. Hmm. Would you be able to perhaps steel man the position of why we should have more understanding of military history? Because it does seem vastly important when you think about how that we were involved in World War One, World War II, how we were involved in these events. Um, But not understanding kind of that background, could you tell us why we might want to encourage that type of education more in in academia?
1: Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. Um, You're right. I mean, for a lot of of Canada's history, we've not paid a lot of attention to our military past. We think of ourselves as an unmilitary people. Um, And particularly in the 1980s and 90s, we thought of ourselves as a peacekeeping nation, not a warrior nation, if you will. And, and you know, and I went to Remembrance Day ceremonies when I was a kid in the 70s when I was a, in scouts or whatever in the early 80s. The only people who went were the veterans and usually, you know, the local RCMP, the firefighters, the cadets, the scouts and cubs. But the general population didn't really attend Remembrance Day ceremonies in those years. It was, uh, it was only the veterans and they were the bulk of people who were in attendance. And, and most Canadians didn't think too much about that military past. You know, uh, when I went into a bookstore in the 1980s, if I was interested in Canada's military past, there was nothing on the shelves. Wow. Um, if, I, you know, and so I would pick up British books or American books. Um, and, and it's still to this, to, the fir- to this day, it's sort of a scarring experience, I guess. But I, I would look to the index first, look up Canada and see the three or four times it was mentioned. You know, not, the reality was our stories were not being told. About those those events, and and that was part of what drove me, I think, and, and interested me in this. Um, I think the war is actually not. I mean, all of the wars have been incredibly important to the development and shape of modern day Canada um, over the course of the 20th century. You know, we've had lost oh, well over 100,000 killed, and well over two million Canadians have have served. In Canada's armed forces during the 20th century alone, I mean that's an enormous number, you know. Um, so th- this was something that affected huge numbers of Canadians, everyday Canadians. It wasn't just a, a small group of professional soldiers or something like that that we're talking about. These were nationally traumatizing experiences, and and Canada was important in these. You know, these were uh, important stages in the development of the country. You know, people talk about the First World War kind of coming of age for Canada. Uh, it helped to raise our profile and make us an international entity for the first time. We got to sign the peace treaty independently. We got a seat at the League of Nations during the interwar years. That would never have happened in the early 20th century. Um, the Second World War, in a similar way, was, you know, was a, another sort of expansive moment for the country. It, it really became a more major player, a middle power on the world stage, not just a small bit player. And, and we as Canadians became more engaged in the world, you know, more willing to actually play a part to take on the responsibilities of being an international, a member of the international community, not just the status uh, of, of being at the big kids table kind of thing or the adults table. And, uh, And and it didn't just stop with the Second World War either. You know, the uh, Korean conflict was really important in terms of Canada being part of the United Nations, the the idea of collective security as a means of trying to prevent aggressors from launching wars in the future. Uh, Canada was active in peacekeeping uh, from, you know, the 1950s through to the 1990s. and, And then that kind of peacekeeping kind of died out and we became involved in peace enforcement in the 1990s and early 2000s. And that became really transformative and part of Canada's actual identity. We thought of ourselves as a as a peacekeeping nation. And uh, what's interesting is that started to die out now, too, because Canada hasn't been an active peacekeeper or peace enforcer, if you will, or peace builder since then. Our, our mission in Afghanistan was somewhat about that, but primarily was about trying to develop security to allow development to happen. So it was a much more combat-focused mission. Canadians were uncomfortable with that by the early 2000s. They didn't like seeing images of Canadian soldiers engaged in firefights and, and, you know, seeing coffins coming back. The well over a hundred Canadians who were killed in Afghanistan was traumatic for Canadians. And, and in some ways we'd lost touch with that warrior past. Uh, and so, you know, when I teach Canadian military history, it's, it's often getting young people to, to see the country in a different way that that uh, this has been part of Canada's past, been a really important part of Canada's past. And uh, and we're not so far removed from it as maybe we would like to think.
0: That makes me kind of think about what I've been taught through my undergrad and and attending law school is all these rights we have. And I find it so interesting that this aspect of the sacrifices made to kind of bring about these rights are something that we're starting to kind of let go of yeah. and not have that same... I don't know, when I think of the United States, I think of them as very proud of their military. And because they keep that strong connection with how they got these rights and freedoms, how they went and fought for them, and that became a big part of their identity, where in Canada, we're very focused on our Charter of Rights and Freedoms and how that interacts with our lives. But we don't hear as much about how we got these rights and what it took to protect and defend these rights against other countries who would have removed them. Can you tell us what that experience was like for you and how perhaps some people might miss out on that?
1: Well, I mean, that's one of the things that I think, you know, for younger generations today, many are disengaged from the political process. They don't think about democracy and their rights or necessarily exercising their right to vote or and don't see it as important. And that's something I, for me, I've never been able to feel that way because I think about, you know, particularly in the Second World War, when the survival of democracy, uh, you know, even of Canada, was very much a threat, especially after the fall of France in 1940, Canada was, you know, Britain's second ranking ally. And, and if Britain fell, and it looked like it might in 1940, if the German army had invaded, then, you know, Churchill was talking about bringing the British Navy back to Canada and trying to fight on from Canada. Things looked bleak. And, and you know, that, in that moment, Everyday Canadians, you know, left their life, their farm, their job, their education, set aside all the things they normally would have been doing, you know, wooing and having families and that sort of thing. And, and, and they went away to war, some of them for five or six years. It's a long, long time. And, um, and a lot of them sacrificed a great deal. Even the ones who survived the war, you know, still left a part of themselves uh spiritually psychologically in in the battlefields in in europe and and elsewhere and uh and so because of that i i can't take lightly my right to vote i i have i in 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 one year i I actually spoiled my ballot but i I damn well was going to exercise my right to to tell the political parties that I was not happy with any of them that time around um but i still exercise my democratic duty and and right because it's a sacred thing and and it's it's not a it's not a certain thing and and sometimes i think people do take it for granted but the reality is people fought and died to ensure that we can do this democracy today is still under threat you know uh it's really been attacked in the united states through the trump era it's weakened or 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 you know withered in places like turkey Eastern Europe, the Philippines, and many other countries around the world. And, and if we're not careful, if we don't look after it, if we don't take care of it here in Canada, then, you know, we risk losing it ourselves. And it's one of those things that maybe you don't miss it till it's gone. But once it's gone, it's, it's very hard to get back. Hard to get back. Exactly
0: the metaphor that I'm kind of thinking of is like a plant. And perhaps the roots of our democracy perhaps are going to World War II, entering these fights. Do you see any parallel to the fact that if we don't understand what our role was in the past, that we can't have that same respect? Because I don't don't disagree that so many of my peers roll their eyes at voting and nothing's going to change. And to me, it's like, maybe your vote doesn't sway your local election maybe it doesn't sway the federal election maybe it has no impact on those levels but you have to understand that you are the cornerstone of the state and that you are the thing that allows the state to move forward in a better direction you help inform it you are you hold the go- the government accountable for their actions and you keep it in check it doesn't like right now it feels like we have much more of this look as the government is the people who are to save us and to kind of guide us through. And I think that there are certain aspects, of course, public health needs to take the lead on this. But we still have to hold our government accountable to a certain extent and make sure that when there are scandals, that people are held responsible. And it feels like right now we have a lot of leaders that perhaps don't have that sense of it's it's time to step I need to step down because I'm no longer leading the state in the way that it needs to be led. Um, I'm distracting from the leadership of our country. And so, therefore, I resign based on the inability for me to move forward with the confidence of the country. Like that type of energy doesn't – I don't feel that same type of leadership. So, could you talk about that metaphor that I mentioned first, perhaps?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think that governments often do overstay they're they're welcome there's a, there's a lifespan to any government before they start to get too comfortable perhaps a sense of entitlement grows and and they start to run out of fresh ideas you know every government comes in pumped primed out of out of out of being in opposition and and ready to try and make change in the way that they think is important for the country But they all lose momentum over a certain period of time, and and they start to gather baggage. And this is why democracy is a beautiful thing, because as a society, collectively, we can say, right time for a time for a change right and, and time to sweep that out, and yes, I, I do think the metaphor of the plant is is really important, and I, and the roots are certainly there in the Second world War. They extend further back, of course, uh, you know through back to, to the long traditions of British parliamentary democracy that that Canada was built on and uh, and then nurtured in its own right. but yeah, when those things are under threat, then I think it can build and strengthen you know certainly for the veterans who came home after the war. They felt there was a reality to what they lived, and, and they sought to make Canada a safer, kinder, gentler, more secure society uh, You know, for their own families and for the greater good, the collective. Uh, and, and that was very real for them. And, uh, and in some ways, I think, as we become distanced in time from those events, as, as the very veterans themselves have started to pass on, you know we don't have many Second World War veterans left, and you know, the last First World War veteran died of oh, a decade or so ago. And that tangible connection to those events, I think, puts more onus on us today to think about their example and to 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 make sure that we do look after what is the heartbeat, uh, you know, the way our society functions. And yes, it's easy to be cynical, and and I know lots of people can become cynical and. Sometimes politicians don't behave well, and uh, you know are corrupt. But the vast majority really aren't. They're well intentioned. They they see what they do as public service, and you know, in the greater good. Uh, and they come to it with their own particular views about what what will make the country a better place. And they don't agree, and that's fine. They shouldn't agree. It's good to have diversity of opinions. But if we're going to have a civil society, we have to be able to also share those opinions with each other, sometimes agree to disagree and not think of the others as hateful, you know, or evil or somehow flawed human beings. Uh, that that in the grand scheme of things, we are still all Canadians. We are still all one and the best for our country, even if we have different views of how best to get there. Um, you know, it's not like people are enemies of the state. This is not like the Second World War in that sense and and so that healthy dialogue healthy understanding of of the place of all of us as citizens in keeping a healthy democracy um and and if need be to defend that democracy is i think something that as canadians we need to retain
0: i really appreciate that because for me i can't I tried committing to one party uh, early on in my kind of growing up phase, I think I was like 17 or 18, and I had committed to the NDP. But as I kind of grew and had more experiences with uh, UFE and having opportunities to learn more through podcasts, I kind of realized that it seems like a mistake to me to pick one side or the other, because it's a, it's a time and place type of issue. At a certain point in time, uh, in my opinion right now, we need a conservative government, and The reason I think that is because I think we've spent a lot economically. Um, I think that that's going to impact our children and perhaps our grandchildren, depending on how you look at it. I worry about the rate of inflation on Indigenous communities because inflation impacts people on fixed incomes the most. And so I think, uh, in my opinion right now, a conservative government would be appropriate because I do think we're going to see another recession. I do think that these things are going to shortly come to an end. And so perhaps a conservative government would be more appropriate now. But I don't disagree that, say, we come out of this and five years later, maybe it's time to bring back a bunch of more social supports. And it's a more of a time and place issue than it is one side is always correct and the other side is always incorrect. I think that you have to be able to update your opinions and say, where are we right now? Do we have a flourishing economy? Are we doing really well? Or do we need to tighten the purse strings and be more careful right now and be more fiscally responsible? And I think that these types of things, I don't think at talk about enough, recognizing that the two sides that are both important on the coin.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I think some people are very comfortable in a particular ideological stream. And so for them, connecting with a particular political party and and a particular ideology is very comfortable and, and suits them and their lifestyle. Uh, I've never been one of those people either. I, I've always been much more issue driven. So, I mean, at, at one time in my life or another, I have voted conservative. I have voted liberal. I have voted NDP, and I have voted Green. I've been all over the map, yeah. uh, and and it is for me. It is issue driven. Yeah, I agree, and then I agree similarly that I think there is there is a fiscal reckoning coming. You know that uh, that Canada's had to and and should have spent heavily as it did to to try and help the, the the country as a whole to get through you know as close to unscathed as we can clearly there's still going to be a lot of marks and this i think covid is going to be one of those things like the second world war where it's going to be an error marker you know that before covid things were like this and then there will be post covid you know as an era uh, yardstick yeah and uh and there things will be different but but there will be a time when we're going to have to address the, the fiscal legacy of, of having to you know, deal with a massive crisis like this. Right. And it's not the first time. You know, if you look at the Second World War, the First World War, Canada doubled and tripled its debt in, you know, in, the, in these kinds of events. And, and that's why you have a government that can actually be you know, uh, intrusive to step in and to help the collective get through difficult times. So that people are not left you know, struggling with their own devices. Um, that's why there's a need for government. But there also sometimes needs to be a balance. And, and my hope is that we deal with the fiscal reckoning before it becomes a crisis like it became in the 1990s when deficit fighting and, and trying to wrestle the debt to ground produced a lot of hardship for, for Canadians across the board. Huge amounts of government services were cut uh education you know funding was cut health funding was cut everything was cut and it was and uh you know if we don't try and deal with those i think fiscal leftovers of covid before it gets to that point then we might go through another you know difficult era of of restraint and and uh, fiscal cutbacks
0: Right. Well, let's get into kind of what you were talking about. We're losing access to the elderly. And I don't think even I've talked about this before, but I don't think we value our seniors uh, the same way I think we should. And I think that Indigenous culture actually sets a good example on how to approach elders and how to look for them, look to them for wisdom, information, knowledge. So can we start perhaps with uh, the First World War? And could you tell us about things you would want listeners to know? What would you want them to get out of it because we don't have access to anybody to be able to share stories what do you think uh, listeners should take away from the first world war
1: from the first world war boy that's a big question and and you're a little you're a little risky to just let a historian like say first world war go yes we got all the time in the world <laughs> I'll try not to take all of it um, first world war is really important event for Canada, for Canadians. Um, Canada's is re- still relatively small. Population was about 7.5 million when the war broke out. And and still very um, uh, divided between French and English. In English Canada, there's huge support to to go to war. We didn't get to declare war. We were still a, a dominion and and didn't have control over our own foreign policy. So as soon as Britain declared war, the entire empire was at war uh but here in Canada Canadians were enthusiastic actually it might sound bizarre to us today but when news of the declaration of war went through there were spontaneous parades in the streets bands played people were excited you know there hadn't been a major war in a century since the defeat of Napoleon in Europe and so in this era where social darwinist ideas were quite common currency people looked on the idea of war as a chance for societies to test themselves against each other this was about survival of the fittest and and people of course believed that you know in english canada that the anglo-saxon race was the fittest and this was going to be proven and uh and so there was a, a degree of enthusiasm about going to war and of course people expected the war to be short and sharp and ended by a few decisive battles like they all said oh it's going to be over by christmas the big concern for the canadian boys was are they going to be able to get there in time to take part in the adventure before the war comes to an end. And so, tens of thousands of Canadian men enlisted. By October of 1914, more than 30,000 went overseas.
0: Was there the draft?
1: No, not initially. Uh, there was no need. You know, Canada's armed forces in most of our major conflicts have been largely raised through voluntarism. And that was the case for most of the First World War as well. Uh, up until 1917, in fact, voluntary enlistments enabled Canada to build up an army of four divisions on the Western Front, a little over 100,000 men, and to sustain that even through all the heavy casualties of 1915 and 1916 uh, and into 1917 as well to Vimy Ridge. And uh, and it's only after that that the Prime Minister of the time, Robert Borden, uh, happened to be in Britain for conferences uh, with uh, the Empire leadership and came to visit the troops after the Battle of Vimy Ridge and he came back to Canada determined to make sure, because Canada was starting to run out of voluntary enlistments at that stage, that uh, that he was going to find the replacements to make sure the Canadian Corps could stay strong through to the end of the war, regardless of how they were raised. And that's what brought conscription on in 1917, which was a bitterly divisive issue. Um, it really, in many ways, it fractured what was already a very fraught relationship between English and French Canada. I think you could argue that out of that we ended up with two Canadian identities that lived in parallel with each other throughout the 20th century. You had a, a French-Canadian nationalism very much isolated in Quebec, and you had an English-Canadian nationalism more broadly throughout the rest of the country. And in some ways, I think you can draw fairly direct lines from that, that break in 1917 to the rise of the to to the quiet revolution in Quebec in the 1960s the rise of the Parti Quebecois the sovereignty referendum in 1980 and and then eventually this the second uh referendum in 1995 that of course came within a percentage point of, of actually breaking Canada apart yeah. potentially so um the legacies of that war really lasted a long time and that's only you know one part of the legacy women get the vote for the first time when during the war um in that election for conscription uh, federally, but provincially it started earlier in 1916 in Manitoba and Alberta. BC was 1917. So, you know, th- that was another important legacy of that war um, that, that I think it's important for us to know as Canada, uh, as Canadians today. Um, what else? What else? Maybe the idea that Canadians could be accomplished soldiers. We don't think of Canada today, as I said earlier, as a you know warlike people or a warrior nation, and yet Canada's military contribution in the Second World in the First World War, we they all arrived almost entirely as amateur soldiers. Right, a lot of them were served in the militia, but they were just part-time soldiers. And and Canada's units in in the Western Front were pretty amateurish still through 1915, but by 1916 they were starting to really learn how to fight, learn how to how to deal with a modern industrial battlefield that had lots of artillery and, and you know uh, barbed wire entanglements and machine guns and poison gas. And it was a pretty awful experience. And yet the Canadians became very adept actually at, in particularly, attacking. Um, learned how to break through the German defenses almost at will. From Vimy Ridge in April of 1917, right through to the end of 1918, uh, of the you know the armistice in November of 1918, Canada's Corps on the Western Front became an elite attacking formation within the British Expeditionary Force, and was famous. I mean, Vimy Ridge we all remember today. It's symbolically important, even if it wasn't. Necessarily, strategically, a big deal. It didn't really shorten the war any day or anything like that. But it's come down to us as the kind of symbolic shorthand of what were, was, a, and in some ways, a remarkable accomplishment for for Canada at the time. That you know, Canadian soldiers were were seen by both their enemies and their allies as as some of the best uh, and most effective soldiers of the First World War. Could you tell us about Vimy Ridge? Sure. Yeah, Vimy Ridge is a high point of ground in northeastern France. And uh, it had been in German hands uh, since the early part of the war, late 1914-15. The French army had tried twice to take that back in 1915, lost over 100,000 men trying to do this. And the Germans had spent all the years since more heavily fortifying it and, and really considered it impregnable. And so the Canadians came into that sector the front in in the winter of 1916-17 spent months preparing. They knew they were going to be attacking it at some point in the spring. They dug miles of tunnels in the chalky soil underground, literally they're called subways. And if you go to Vimy Ridge today, some of those subways are still accessible. You can do a public tour and it's quite remarkable. They're they're tight, you know, for you can imagine hundreds of men hiking through these tunnels with big packs and rifles. Uh, there were huge underground um, caverns that were dug out where an entire battalion of 700 men could wait to go up you know, into the front lines safe from enemy fire. And uh, there was huge amounts of preparations. All kinds of guns were brought in. The Germans knew they were coming. And yet on the day, Canadian artillery fire was superb. And the tactics were were well developed and well designed, and they managed to roll through the German defenses and capture the entire ridge, almost entire ridge, within a matter of hours. In fact, there were a few chunks that held out for a day or a day or two afterwards. But it was it was a small part of a larger British offensive that mostly didn't go very well, except for the the, the capture of Vimy Ridge. So it was the first time that the Canadians really got a lot of press. Uh, it was Easter Monday and the French press called it, you know, Canada's Easter gift to France. And the press in London made a big deal of the Canadians. Canadians back home were super proud of it. Uh, and and the soldiers themselves knew that it had been a real accomplishment to take this. Um, so it, it was it sort of announced their their arrival, if you will, as as an elite uh, formation on the Western Front. Um, but, but it's one of those things it, it, it wasn't that big a deal in the broad realm of the First World War as a whole. Uh, and it wasn't a certainty after the war that Vimy Ridge would become the site for Canada to build a memorial and to remember its sacrifices in the Great War. You know, there were, at one point, there were going to be a whole series of smaller memorials at eight or 10 sites, and Vimy was not necessarily the most important of those or seen necessarily in that way. And the decisions eventually evolved to the point where they were only going to build one memorial, and Vimy Ridge was determined to be the place to build it. Right. And in part because of that, when that massive and, and star- stunning, you know, uh, limestone memorial was unveiled in 1936, it, that became the focal point of Canada's memory. And so, when students come into my class today, they know Vimy Ridge. They don't know any other battle of the First World War that the Canadians necessarily fought in, but they do know Vimy Ridge. So it's it's I, I sort of feel badly because on the one hand I'm dismantling a little of the mythology of Vimy Ridge and telling them these sorts of things, but also broadening their understanding of how the Canadian Corps got to be successful at Vimy Ridge with, you know, through the long, hard classroom on the Western Front, and then what they did afterwards, which in many ways are much more important to helping to end the war in 1918. And the Canadian battles in the last hundred days are, are hugely important. The Canadian forces were like the spearhead of the Allied armies, fighting in some of the most difficult parts of the line, always achieving their objectives, capturing 10% of all of the prisoners that all of the Allied armies captured in the last 10 days, even though they made up probably 2% of the actual numbers. Yeah. Uh, you know, they really punched above their weight class. And, uh, and so that, for me, is the most important part of the, the First World War, is how adept, how proficient, how professional they had become, uh, and and because of that, how successful they were.
0: Right. Could you tell us a little bit about how the first world war came about what caused you mentioned a little bit about social darwinism as a motivation for canadians to want to get involved mm. but what caused these issues because my childhood self when i was sitting in these classes or learning about the war was like well if i was there we would just avoid war because that's silliness and why would you send soldiers out and like they're the politicians are sitting at home making their decisions and we're sending out vulnerable children young people to go out and fight uh we should have just avoided all of that and we could have just been so much smarter. Um, But I think that that's probably naive to think. So could you tell us a little bit about how this came about?
1: Yeah. Hindsight makes us feel like we're smarter than people in the past, but the reality is they were dealing with lots of unknowns. And when they, you know, one of the tricks in, in trying to understand past actors is you actually have to try and get out of your own shoes and put yourself in somebody else's shoes, trying to erase all knowledge of what does happen. And stand in the past and look forward, and then you when you do that, all of a sudden you see not just what does happen but all the alternatives that didn't you know the dead ends the the errors the 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 lost hope lost causes kind of thing that that never did take place. When you stand in the future or stand in the present and look back, it all looks like a much clearer, more straightforward line, and so putting yourself in that past you can see that there you know lots of people were making decisions and making. What we can see now were mistakes or, or fateful decisions that helped lead to war. But the conditions in Europe before the war were such that, in a, in a lot of ways, the continent was kind of primed for it. Um, all the different nations in Europe were in a period of intense nationalism in all the different countries, but also intense militarism. You know, They felt all of them threatened their neighbors and so they built strong militaries which of course made their neighbors feel more threatened Who then built strong militaries so they felt better and and you know there's a real arms race going on germany is a rising power in central europe is building a navy to challenge british naval dominance france wants to get back alsace and lorraine two provinces it lost in a war with prussia in 1870 Uh, russia is a giant behemoth on the east but it's not very well organized and so all of these countries have huge militaries, you know, Germany's standing armies, well over 800,000, and they all, the countries have also instituted conscription, uh, peacetime draft. So every young man would go into the military and spend three years in the military, two or three years, and then they would return to peacetime life, but they were liable to be recalled at a moment's notice. So France, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Russia, Italy, Britain, all of them had the capability, Britain less so of of ramping that peacetime professional army of hundreds of thousands of men up into the millions in a matter of weeks. So they were kind of primed. And then the other thing that we often point to is, is that there's a, in part because these countries felt insecure, they looked to build alliances so that to, to help make themselves feel safer. And so you had two different armed camps, essentially, in Europe. You had the Triple Alliance of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Italy. And then opposing them were Russia and France in a very close alliance. And somewhat loosely connected to this was the British Empire in what was known as the Triple Entente. And so those two armed camps are kind of staring at each other. And and what happens then is in the summer of 1914, in the Balkans, in the Bosnian city of Sarajevo, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire is killed by a Serb nationalist. And Serbia is an independent nation next door, but Austria-Hungary decides it wants to swallow it up in, in retribution for this. And uh, and so it asks Germany if it's going to have its back, if it pushes this, because they fear Russia might want to get involved. Russia has interests in the Balkans. So Austria the Germans say, yep, yeah, you go. No worries. We got your back. Austria Hungary starts to mobilize, issues an ultimatum to Serbia, and it's like dominoes falling. Russia then threatens Austria Hungary and says, Back down, or we're going to start mobilizing. They start to mobilize. Germany then threatens Russia, We're going to mobilize. They start to mobilize. Then France mobilizes. And so all the dominoes fall. And there'd been crises like these before, but always, you know, and sometimes it came to brinkmanship, you know, sort of international chicken and saber rattling and you back down or I'll go to war. No, you back down somebody that always blinked before. Well, in 1914, nobody blinked. And, and so, the Germans wound up launching their forces through Belgium and into France, trying to defeat France quickly, and that brought Britain into the war because it had signed a treaty to protect the neutrality of Belgium. And so, on August the 4th, Britain declared war, and we found ourselves in it. Wow. That is
0: just hard to imagine. And the way you lay it out is just so clear. And it's just so easy to get lost in this and like it just surprises me that this information isn't more readily discussed because it is so engaging and so interesting to see how we operated as a society and how uh, allegiances were made. And these allegiances still largely exist today. Like you think about uh, our relationship with China, our relationship with Russia, our partnership with the United States, um, these close relationships still kind of exist today. Like we can put this into modern terms and then kind of take away that, well, that was history and these people are somehow different than me. When you think about we're on the outs with China right now, we, yeah. we have a very tough relationship right now, and it's hard to say where where that's going to land and it is again like this chicken they have i believe still two of our uh, canadian citizens locked up uh and those
1: two have been freed okay the michaels were freed yes um but there are other canadians including a young man from abbotsford who was arrested with for drug possession uh but who has been given a death sentence for this yeah uh and you're right i i agree that that our relationship with china is very fraught and it's hard to see where this goes in the future, but you, these alliances do exist. Canada remains part of NATO, yeah. North Atlantic Treaty Organization. We remain connected to Europe. We have Canadian soldiers who are in Latvia uh, and Estonia and and uh, Lithuania, trying to help those countries feel less threatened by Russian aggression and actions, because uh, Putin is, uh, you know, starting to rumble and and try to rebuild kind of Russia's. Military and and uh, political clout back to where it was during the Cold War, and uh, and so there it is uncertain times, and and our alliances remain really critical to us. Uh, and again, all the more reason why it's important we think of ourselves not simply as peacekeepers, but you know, in times of war, Canadians have always stepped forward uh, and and carried their weight.
0: Right. Just a really quick question, uh, and then we can get into the Second World War. Um, So, from my understanding, Israel still has a conscription process for their young people. And when I learned that more recently, I kind of thought about my high school experience, and I don't know if you experienced this, but there were certain peers of mine that just had this desire to be a part of the military to go learn to educate themselves to get that discipline i don't think that they were looking to go murder people like i don't think that that was the cause but i had certain peers who were like I want to go join the military, the Canadian military. I want to I want to go to the gym every day. I want to build my body up and I want to be a strong follower and like um like get that discipline built into me, be a strong leader, develop those skills and grow as an individual as a consequence. I'm just interested to know what your thoughts are on how Israel approaches things. Do you think that Um, from an outside perspective, that that's a bad thing? Do you think that perhaps encouraging more, like I know the United States is much more encouraging of people to join uh, their military at a younger age. It doesn't seem like Canada plays much of a role in that, but I do see some of my peers being like, I really want this. And then they're kind of ostracized from, in my opinion, the larger collective of the school or Mm. their, their peers, because that's so out there for everybody else. And I'm just interested in your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, you're right. In Canada, a military career is not a commonly sought out one, I think, for, for a lot of young people, although it can be an excellent career. It's an opportunity to get all kinds of different education. Travel you know, the world. Travel the world, job experiences, because a lot of it is very, of course, technical as well. So it's not simply about soldiering and carrying a rifle. There's a lot of modern warfare that uh, that involves uh, and, and modern armies in fact, the people who carry the rifle are the minority. A lot, of, a lot more of the army and the military forces are needed for everything else that goes on around behind the scenes. And a lot of that is very technology heavy these days. Um, and so there is, there is lots of possibilities there. And, and uh, it's not something Canada's ever been as – or in recent years has been as forthright about. I think the Canadian military does try to recruit. Uh, sometimes it struggles to get itself up to full strength, actually. And it's much easier in the United States. It's much more all-encompassing. you know, a military career is seen as more viable. There are countries like Israel that maintain conscription uh, in Israel's case because it feels still surrounded and threatened by enemies. But they're not the only ones uh, you know Switzerland does. We think of Switzerland, of course, as a, you know the paragon of neutrality, but what sustains their neutrality when they're surrounded by large and powerful neighbors is, and has traditionally been, conscription and a very powerful military. For the size of the country. And, and in countries that have conscription, in a way, it kind of is a common leveler. It becomes part of the national experience that, you know, in the same way that you go to school in Canada and then lots of people go on to university and you go through these stages in your life. Well, for everybody, the military becomes part of that stage. They all go through the same training. And so, it it does create a sense of connection to the nation, to, to a broader common cause, I think. And so, it can, it can be a positive social uh, influence in that regard. Um, and, and, you know, you're right. I think people do develop a sense of discipline, uh, learn how to work within an organization, um, how to follow orders, how to give orders and, and lead. So there, there are a lot of, of, uh, transferable skill sets that come out of a military uh, career or at least experience in the military. And, um, and so it's not, I don't see it necessarily as a as a, a bad thing, uh, and and I think in Canada, you know we our our military does quite a lot of different things. A lot, it's much more likely in in recent years to be involved in helping out with natural, national national disa- or natural disasters like the fires here in BC this past summer, uh, you know, floods and a variety of other things with COVID. Help, you know, providing medical service uh, expertise to to um, to Ontario, to Alberta helping out in care homes in, in Quebec. So the, the the kinds of things that you, the jobs that you'll be doing are really diverse um, and and not always about fighting, not always about conflict. But I, those skill sets are important in a lot of different kind of crazy situations.
0: I don't disagree. And when I think of like – Part of the reason I thought you would be such a great guest is because, to me, you are the steward for the history of all of these role models, all of these people who were willing to put their country, to put their children, their grandchildren above themselves. And to me, that is is a role model. And it wasn't always clear that you were going to return home. And that's the ultimate sacrifice. And I've had the pleasure of having Bill Turnbull on, who's the owner of the town butcher, and he wanted to serve in the military. And the kind of common theme I've seen among people who are open to joining the military or who have served is this intense amount of honor and responsibility to their community. This sense of it is the collective before myself. And not everybody has that. Not everybody needs, like, we can't all be identical in certain ways. But the qualities that i think that you get out of this is so valuable and once i started looking at role models i started to realize that there are role models throughout history that i don't know that people like yourself can shine light on and that is to me your service to our community because if we don't have access to that if you're not here if we don't have access to the people who did serve then there's no connection other than a book and that's not going to be the type of storytelling that i think you're sharing today
1: Story storytelling is at the heart of of being a historian. Um, in some ways, it's one of the great pleasures of being a history teacher is actually being allowed, enabled to to share stories. Um, so for me, I, I enjoy lecturing. I I enjoy the performative elements of it. I, I like sharing, engaging, funny. And and sometimes emotional stories from from the past, and I think that helps students. You're right to connect in a way that reading about a thing, an event, or a person may may not always have the same kind of level of connection. Yeah. Perhaps. Um. I'm, I I don't know if I want to take on all the responsibility of being a steward for the memory and and sacrifice of veterans, but I certainly do try and do my bit for the greater good. If in that way, as best I can. Um, I've never served in the military, I, I you know, so I don't have firsthand experience. My knowledge is is book knowledge, um, and and it, unless you have served, particularly served in combat, you can't fully appreciate that experience. It, it's a bit of a kind of a Rubicon you can't cross without having been through it, um, and and so it's hard to get students even close to that line. Sometimes we live thankfully in a you know a peaceful. A peaceful um, country with relatively boring politics, um, which I always tell people is a, a great gift. Because <laughs> if your politics are more interesting, it may not be as peaceful. Um, and and so the you know the people are a long ways removed from these stories. Uh, not many people hunt anymore as well. Like I grew up in Cranbrook, everybody hunted. I I grew up being used to using firearms. But when I went away to Ontario to teach in, you know, a uh, university in Southern Ontario in an urban center, nobody did. Nobody had even touched a gun. And so they're even that one bit further removed from the ideas and the, you know, the reality. Uh And and so I I remember having a, trying to, I had a, a, a student who was a, in a reenactment group. They collected uh, period uniforms, decommissioned weapons and that sort of thing. Uh, from the Second World War, and and I, I was hoping to get him to come into class in uniform with the Second World War Canadian uniform and weapons that have been decommissioned, so they're no longer functional. And there was no possible way to to bring those weapons on campus, even though they were no longer functional. Uh, in in the nineteen nineties. It was it was seen as too soon after the massacre at the Coll in in Montreal, and. And it was I, it, people thought I was crazy to even suggest it. And I, I, I can remember thinking, well, that's all the more reason why. I mean, I can explain what a what a Bren light machine gun looks like, but when you see it, it has a certain gravitas. It looks, you can you can it exudes a lethality, you know, that its purpose is for killing. And and that whole idea that war at a certain level is about killing the enemy, uh, and that is its ultimate purpose and in its most terrible purpose for those who have to actually do the pulling of the trigger putting yourselves into those shoes if you can't even if you've never touched a gun you can't even imagine like feel the weight of it it's just there's so many barriers to, to trying to connect people to that experience um and so there's lots of different ways that we try and help get people through to to feel some sort of connection one of the things that i do with my Canadian military history class is there's an amazing collection of letters uh, and diaries and other documents that have been collected and digitized uh, at Vancouver Island University's Canadian Letters and Images Project. And they have the letters collected from hundreds of Canadian soldiers from the First World War, many from the Second World War and other other events as well. And I get my my, my students to read through the letters of a lot of these soldiers and then write write an, an essay, that sort of think piece essay about what, what was the role of this personal communication? Uh, what did it mean to the soldiers? What did it mean to their families back home? What was being communicated here? And um, and it makes it personal. It makes these people who are normally just images in black and white photographs seem human. And, and, you know, my students tell me, like they're reading through these people's letters. They've read 20 letters that this guy wrote over a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, the last thing is a telegraph saying, we regret to inform you that, you, you know, your son was killed in action kind of thing. And they weep. You know, they, they actually become personally invested in these people as human beings. Uh, and, and it's really quite powerful, actually, I think, and, and brings home in a way that we could then Im- transfer and imagine in a present-day context. Yeah. What does that look like? What does that mean? Um, how might that feel? Because, of course, the students in my class, that's the demographic that would have been overseas. Yeah. Overwhelming majority of them would have been in, in a uniform.
0: Absolutely. And when you say that, it makes me think of, I don't know if you saw, I think it was on Netflix, The Diaries of Anne Frank. Um, I think it was Meryl Streep who uh, did the voiceover for it. I can't remember for sure. But that experience of hearing her story and hearing Mm -hmm. the processes that she went through was very eye-opening. That and watching World War II in color were very moving in that you see the reality for the individuals and you see the fears and the concerns and how the layout of the kind of the politics is is set up as well. And I think that that puts it, it gives more of that access. And I think that that's so valuable. Can you tell us about, so Hitler, I believe, was involved in World War I or the Great War. And then from there, it doesn't sound like he's having a great time. Can you tell us about how World War Two kind of comes about?
1: Yeah, Hitler did serve in the in the First World War. He was gassed. He, he was a corporal and served in you know in the front lines, kind of thing. So he he did experience the horrors of war. Um, but uh, but that seems not to have daunted him from the idea that it's worth pursuing. Uh, during the interwar period, uh, Germany really struggles. Um, the Allies punish them severely. The Treaty of Versailles and the, and the reparations payments uh, severely restrict the amount of military. Their you know forces or uh, equipment they're allowed to have, uh, and and Germany is really humbled, and and many Germans are very bitter about the experience. Uh, many veterans feel they were stabbed in the back by socialists and communists behind, you know at home who rioted and 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 uh, sort of forced the German government to bring the war to an end in 1918. But the reality was Germany was also badly defeated by that stage, and. Um, and so the Weimar Republic that that grows through the 20s is a somewhat fragile, not very healthy thing. Its, it's democracy is fragile. There are violent elements within that society, and, and some of them gravitate towards Hitler and the National Socialist Party that he develops. He tries to create a, a coup at one stage unsuccessfully and winds up getting busted for that and serving some time. But eventually he comes back to the political game and and achieves increasing support uh, you know as a far right wing nationalist party in the early 1930s particularly because Germany is heavily hammered by the great depression, and it creates conditions that are more conducive to to the extremist kind of messaging to the scapegoating of Jews that are part of of the Nazi message and uh, and he garners a lot of support eventually manages to win enough support to make himself the government. And once in government, he pretty much dismantles all sorts of democratic structures to create essentially a dictatorship. But what he also does is he takes over control of the economy. He injects huge amounts of money into major works projects like building the Audubon highway systems. He builds up the military, starts investing in in building up weapon systems. He abrogates the Treaty of Versailles says, we're no longer abiding by that. Uh, And and all of this actually injects a lot of money into the German economy in a way that starts to pull the economy out of the doldrums faster than was happening, certainly here in Canada. There were a lot of people in Canada who admired Hitler at this stage, who thought, you know, what we could use here is a strong hand at the tiller like this to to help lift us out of what seemed to many people to be the failure of capitalism after years of depression. And, and so, you know, Germany is increasingly aggressive, seeming. You know, certainly Hitler's messaging is very, very much so. But he also starts to test the boundaries. So he, he remilitarizes the Rhineland, reoccupies that. And what is the Rhineland? The Rhineland is a part of Germany that was at, in the Versailles Treaty, uh, right on the border with France, that was declared a demilitarized zone. And it was occupied by the Allies for many years. And in this case, he marches German troops in and reoccupies and remilitarizes this. And if the Western countries, France in particular, had tried to resist this, he was prepared to step back. He wasn't ready to, to move to war yet. But they didn't. You know, a lot of people in the West were starting to think, well, maybe we were too harsh with Versailles. This is understandable what he's doing. And God knows we don't want a war. Uh, you know, there's so much trauma from the, the devastation and the death that followed the war that no no sane country wanted to go to war. And and this really affects particularly Britain and France, who are the great powers in Europe, left to kind of try and deal with this now increasingly aggressive Hitler. Not only him, but also the, the fascist leader in, in Italy, Benito Mussolini. And in Japan, Imperial Japan itself is also becoming increasingly aggressive in Asia. You know, it's taking over chunks of China. Uh, it then invades China in 1937. Uh, here in the West, we think of the war as starting in 39, But realistically, the Pacific theater, the war kicks off in 1937 when Japan invades China. And, and so there's a lot of instability in the world. All these three countries are pushing the boundary. Italy invades Abyssinia, which is present-day Ethiopia. Um, and the League of Nations you know, thinks about putting sanctions on to try and stop them and eventually kind of backs down. And lets them conquer the last free country in in Africa that was actually a member of the League of Nations, and that kind of was the death knell for the League of Nations as a some sort of international body that could keep the peace. And so Hitler then begins to you know push the boundaries even more. He he re, uh, unifies Germany and Austria, which was something that was prohibited under Versailles, so that Germany is now larger. Uh, he then starts to make rumblings about. Portions of of Czechoslovakia, the boundary areas that had a lot of ethnic Germans living in, called the Sudetenland, um, and had German agents trying to stir up trouble there. Eventually, France and Britain meet with Hitler and Mussolini, and they decide, okay, you can have the Sudetenland. They don't even invite the Czechoslovak leadership to the table. This they just this is the height of appeasement, right? This is if we just give them a few things that they want, they'll settle down and we'll have peace. Uh, unfortunately, all the appeasement sort of policies did was in, to embolden the aggressor nations even more. Because as soon as the Sudetenland was gone, Germany, in fact, invaded the Czech half and seized it right away and turned the Slovak half into a protectorate. And uh, at that point, the Western Isles, was like, okay, we can no longer trust a word. He said, you know, um, if anything further happens, it's time to stand up to Hitler. And so in the summer of 1939, Hitler um, decides that uh, he's going to, there's a chunk of Poland he wants. He starts making threatening noises towards Poland. France and, and Britain say, We guarantee Poland security, that if you invade, we will declare war. And Hitler doesn't believe them. He still thinks it's a couple of years before the Western allies will stand up to him. And so he concludes the Pact of Steel with Stalin and the Soviet Union, and the two of them invade and share Poland between them. But as soon as German troops cross the line, the Western allies issue an ultimatum, and then Britain declares war on September 3rd,
0: 1939. Can you just really quickly, because from my understanding, Hitler was very right-leaning, he was very against communist ideas, but he partners with Stalin, who's the ultimate left-leaning person in terms of communism. Can you just uh, share a little bit about that and then please feel free to continue.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. The Pact of Steel really catches everybody globally by surprise because uh, you could not imagine stranger bedfellows than, than Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. One a communist, the other a fascist, both at the extreme opposite ends of the political spectrum. Both saw each other as an enemy. But in this case, they made common cause because both wanted to carve up Poland for, in between them. Um, but theres I can remember there was a great uh, British satirical cartoon that came out in the newspaper showing the two of them shaking hands together and, you know, both of them holding a knife behind their back kind of thing. It's, oh, the scum of the earth, I, I see. Oh, yes, the spawn of the devil, you know, making a deal with the devil. Both of them thought they were. Yeah. Uh, but it was a short-term thing because, of course, Germany will eventually invade the Soviet Union in the summer of 1940. Right. And please feel free to continue. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, anyway, the, um, the, the war breaks out in, in September 1939 in, the, in Europe. Um, Canada isn't automatically included in the war by Britain's declaration. And so the Canadian Parliament is recalled because it was in recess at the time. It took about a week to get everybody together. Uh, it was briefly debated in the House Commons. And then a near unanimous uh, declaration of war was passed by Canada on the 10th of September. Who is the Prime Minister then? Prime Minister is Wilfred Lyon Mackenzie King. Okay. Uh he's our longest-serving ever Prime Minister. He comes to power in the early 1920s, serves throughout most of the interwar period, except for the first five years of the Depression. He kind of got lucky that way. He he didn't do very well at the very beginning of the Depression. And so we got booted out and, and R.B. Bennett came in for the Conservatives from 1930 to 35, which was the worst of the Depression. And then Bennett was turfed out because he didn't fix the Depression. And Mackenzie King came back in, not because people loved Mackenzie King, but because he wasn't R.B. Bennett, Yeah, mostly. Oh, interesting. Uh, and then King stays in power until 1948 when he re- retires.
0: Wow. And so then what happens? So what, we unanimously agree to go to war.
1: Very nearly, yeah. The only dissenting vote comes from J.S. Woodsworth, who's a member of the CCF, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. It's a foreigner today's D- NDP, who is a real pacifist. And for him, philosophically, he can't go there. But the rest of his party some, you know, votes in support. Um, but it, you know, it wasn't a given that Canada was going to come into the war, um, especially with Mackenzie King at the helm. But through a lot of the interwar years, Canada was quite isolationist. Um, the war was scarring. We, you know, for Canada, we lost sixty six thousand plus dead uh, in the First World War, and for a small country, that was there's hardly a family unaffected in the country. And so, people didn't really want to go fight other people's wars through the nineteen thirties. It's one of the reasons why we were we were happy to have the the status of sitting at the League of Nations, but we didn't want the responsibility of collective security. And and part of that was because we felt safe. In fact, Canada's re- representative at the League in 1923, he made a famous speech in which he said, you know, we live in a fireproof house, far from inflammable materials. And, and and so Canada wasn't really keen on the collective security provisions of the League Charter. We actually made a lot of important things that helped weaken the League. Like We didn't want to be forced to go fight other people's wars. So we managed to get it sort of rejigged so that, well, you were supposed to, but your parliament, your government could basically decide if and how much you'd participate. And um, and so, you know, some of the reasons for the League's inability to respond to the rise of Italy and Germany and Japan, frankly, lie at the feet of Canada and our, our leaders. And Mackenzie King was at the forefront of this. He was badly scarred by the experience of the First World War, right? That conscription crisis, it tore the Liberal Party apart as much as it tore French and English Canada apart. And as a liberal leader, he depended on both French and English MPs to stay in power. And so for him, national unity was the lens through which he viewed all things. And, and anything that was going to potentially lead Canada into a war could potentially lead Canada to conscription, could potentially lead Canada to breaking French and English Canada apart and the destruction of the country. That's how that, that was the equation in his mind. And so he, anything he could do to avoid taking action. Sanctions well, that's just a halfway house to war. He kept telling Britain, don't do anything, I can't promise that we're going to be at your side. He didn't want to encourage Britain to be too bellicose, and so some of Britain's enthusiasm for appeasement was in part because Canada and the other dominions were not always clearly going to be on side if they got into a war uh, and most Canadians, I think, supported that that appeasement you know when when the British and French governments were selling out Czechoslovakia to Hitler. Mackenzie King was there with his pom poms and his cheerleader skirt, just just singing the praises of Britain for doing this. Right. Uh, and in some ways, to us today, because appeasement became a bad word, because we know in the end that it led to, you know, just encouraging Hitler and, and Mussolini, that uh, that it was a failed strategy. At the time, it it made sense. Nobody wanted to go back to war, you know, and the thought of it was enough that you. You would take some pretty what we now see as morally problematic actions in order to avoid that war in the end, of course, we couldn't avoid war um, and Mackenzie King knew that he couldn't keep Canada out of a war if Britain got involved in a serious war that threatened Britain because in English Canada, there's still a lot of 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 uh, sympathy for britain a lot of a lot of british Canadians still identified in some ways. More or less strongly with with Britain and the British Empire, and and because we we tended to look at Britain as sort of the defender of a lot of the philosophical and ideological values that we cherished—freedom and democracy, that sort of thing—were which were very much seen as at threat. That that the kind of government that that Hitler and Mussolini were leading were seen as very much attacking this kind of way of life. So it was really fundamental kind of values at stake, and, and I think that's really what motivates Canada to go to war. It wasn't just a knee-jerk kind of colonial, oh, Britain's at war, we got to go help mom kind of thing. There's there's something of that in there. But it's it's a deeper commitment to the war. And so when war breaks out, you don't see the enthusiasm and spontaneous parades of nineteen thirty nine. But more Canadians offer themselves for service in the first four months of the war in 1939 than they did in 1914.
0: So, can you comment on, you talked about the social Darwinism of that sense of like, oh, we have to see which is greater. It doesn't sound like that was the case in World War II.
1: No, I don't think so. I think in a lot of ways, the First World War is much more an imperial struggle of empires, right? And and that racial tone certainly framed a lot of that. The Second World War is much more a war for between democracy and and fascism, you know, between totalitarianism and and a, and a free thinking uh, democratic society. Uh, at least that's what we were fighting for when we went into the war. Of course, at the, by the end of the war, and we didn't know this until the end. We didn't see the full scope of of the horrors, of the Holocaust. And at that point, we, I think many people in Canada and elsewhere realized that, in fact, this was a war for the very soul of humanity. In a lot of ways, uh, there was there was no. It was a it was a just war. It was a war that had to be fought. It was a war that Canada had to be a part of. um we couldn't avoid it.
0: That is just hard to even imagine in today's society just to try and put yourself in these shoes and i don't you can't blame Mackenzie King for his position um but I do see, like, a lot of parallels of, like, the culture today to the circumstance. Like, when we were dealing with Afghanistan, I I felt those tensions even growing up of, like, should we be there? Yeah. Should we – and, like, the United States goes through this regularly of – is what we're doing right should we invade to try and build the democracies and these are still conversations that sort of take place today and it isn't clear what the right answer is because obviously with Afghanistan we're seeing that whatever we tried to do for 20 years didn't didn't take um yeah. but was you couldn't know that until you're you're out of there and you're looking back going it didn't work the optimism perhaps can proceed, and you can, I guess, tie this in with the ideas of: Are we going there for good reasons? For oil? For is are we being altruistic, or are we being malevolent in our going into Afghanistan and all those types of questions? Can you tell us, like, a, more about the the values that people were willing to? Because I think that that's so valuable to to kind of dissect is the willingness to die and fight for your values. That doesn't seem to resonate with many people today. We seem very malleable. If there's a problem, maybe we, we bend the rules a little, like there isn't that same. I watched Hacksaw Ridge and watching um, him struggle and stand up against something, but still believe in the need to go to war. Yeah. Uh, that, that kind of
1: fight. Sorry. Could you tell me his name again? <sighs> Oh, I'm putting you on the spot now you are uh-huh. um I, I I have seen the movie. I'm familiar with the case, but I can't remember the name of the individual uh, who's portrayed in that
0: okay, but anyways, his willingness to be like a conscientious objector of death yeah. to me like there's that's so important. That people are willing to stand by their values, but also see the war as necessary. Like so watching that movie just it struck me because that is so important that we are able to have our values and be able to move forward as a consequence. So can you share some of the values that people had during that time and perhaps why we need to revive these values?
1: Well, I think we we still we still feel these values. It's just events like like a global total war bring them into sharp crystal focus. And and when they're at risk, when they're really really genuinely threatened, I think it's it's harder in, you know, the contemporary context when they aren't they don't feel so threatened and so we aren't we aren't called to to take a stand in a way. In 1939 Canadians are called to take a stand. And and it is clear, maybe not initially because initially um canada tries to fight a limited liability war and that's mackenzie king again it's always everything by half measures and in part his half measures help keep france and or french and english canada together and united but once france falls then it's a war for survival from then on in and everybody everybody is involved Canada's canada is in a total war we enlist huge numbers of men and again mostly volunteerism you know the vast majority like 11 million people live in canada in 1939 and 1.1 million Canadians would put on a uniform during the Second World War. So one in ten people—it's—it's uh, it, it's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. I mean, you think our population is now what 36 million ish? So it would mean 3.6 million Canadians. That's an, almost impossible for us to imagine in a contemporary context. But if there was an existential threat, and it was required. You know, I, I mean, it is it is an interesting question. Would would people step forward? And we never know until you're called. Yeah. But you do see people come together in a crisis. I think early COVID days really showed that, that people mostly really pulled together in Canada. Not everybody, and then not everybody did in the, first, in the Second World War either. You know, you still had a thriving black market and people were doing things they shouldn't do that were against the regulations and, you know, hoarding food and stuff like that. But by and large, people... Pulled together in a time of crisis. And this was very much time of crisis. And those values that then come really to the fore, there's kind of this process where, and one scholar looking at New Zealand, this called it a social tightening, that people kind of look at each other, look, they kind of rally around the flag, they look at every component of their society and say, look, are you with us or against us? And also, who are we and what are we fighting for? Because it matters. You know, if you're going to enlist, if you're going to put your life at stake, you kind of need to feel really clear about that. Um, why am I doing this? What is this for? Is it worth it? And and it's clear in the Second World War for hundreds of thousands of Canadian men and women that it was worth it, that they did, in fact, volunteer to enlist. Canada does bring in conscription, but it's initially only for home defense. Uh, so that starts in 1940, after the fall of France. And so there are tens of thousands of of Canadians who are conscripted and and who serve out the whole war in Canada, defending BC's coast after Japan enters the Pacific War, for instance, by attacking Pearl Harbor. Um, but the vast majority of those who go overseas are volunteers. Um, only a few thousand conscripts actually make it overseas in 1945, just before the war ends. So that's an extraordinary thing, and that that is also part of the, of uh, Canada's tradition that that our, our war efforts have been voluntary things. We haven't forced people into the war for the most part. There have been conscripts who have served both in the First and Second World Wars, but by and large, Canadian service has been a voluntary thing. And so that draws people in because they see their values at stake, things that are important to them. If they believe in democracy, if they believe in freedom, in the equality of humanity, uh, you know, those were the things that people said they were fighting for in the Second World War. Those are the things that were quite clearly at stake in the war against the fascist states um, If we had the same kind of existential threat today, I think Canadians do value the the, the, the values of and, and, and moral structures of our society of of democracy of of you know of change through political not you know action not violence of equality of of voices uh, across the board of different genders different sexual orientations ethnicities, faiths that everybody has a right to a say everybody has a right to their, their beliefs and their values um, if those are genuinely th- perceived to be threatened that changes the equation uh, and that's not to say that everybody goes to war as a crusader you know I mean I, I often tell my students it's worth keeping in mind that the target demographic of mi- militaries the world over has always been your 18, 19, 20 year old male there's a reason for that. At that age, you're bulletproof. You think you're indestructible, and and you're still impressionable and and impulsive, right? You don't always wisely consider all the all the potential consequences of your choices. And so, you know, lots of lots of men signed up in a in a sort of intellectual and, and philosophical state. But others, it was more of a whim. They bumped into their buddies who were heading to the recruitment office, and they said, "Hey, come with us." And they thought, "What the hell? Sure." And they just popped in without really thinking about it. So not everybody gives it a lot of thought. I don't want to give that impression. But, you know, obviously for, for many men who did enlist, and women too, it was a carefully considered decision. You know, they had to. They spoke with their, their family members about it. They spoke with their pastor about it. They, they participated in public discussions and debate. They read the newspapers and tried to understand what was going on in the world. And so they, they came to it as a considered action. I
0: guess I hope that that's what people get out of uh this aspect of the discussion is that you should try and live your life like that. You should try and live your life. Why am I doing this? What are the impacts going to be? What are the benefits? What are the cons? What is the impact that I'm looking to make? Because, for me, this is all a lot of work to try and do law school to try and do this. It's something that I had to commit myself to and say, what is the benefit that it's hopefully going to yield for people? And is it worth my time, energy, effort to try and organize all of this, put in the effort and do it to the best of my own ability, not just kind of like, let's just sit down on the side of the road and have a conversation and I'll record on my iPhone. How do I take this seriously? And utilize the time that people like yourself share to try and provide people with a better framework to look out into the world with. Because I think that that is part of war does put your pressure on like, why am I going? I'm going to get on a boat. I'm going to learn how to fight people. I'm going to be in the middle of nowhere. I could die. Like, It's the ultimate sacrifice in that way. And if you even have half of that mindset, even a quarter of that mindset, I think your life is going to be so much more meaningful when you're putting things into the perspective of, is what I'm doing going to help my family? Is it going to help my community? How could I make it do those things? How can I rearrange my world in order to have a lasting positive impact? Uh, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But how can I move forward at least pointing in that direction? And I think that that gets so lost on so many university students that are like, I'm just going to go work at this place. And I don't know why. And I just want $70,000 and to do minimal amount of work. And it's like, you may be able to live your life like that. But that's not not going to give you that legacy that, that gives you such a meaningful outlook on the world and that makes you go to bed at night not stressed about uh things because you've got your priorities in order and i think that that's where right now it feels like people miss out on that and that's why i asked about conscription and whether or not that would be beneficial because i have a lot of peers who attended university who didn't do it with any mindset of where they want to go with it what their goals are what their aspirations are why it matters to their family to their children like no. all of those organized thoughts don't seem to be there but When you're looking at your family and you're saying, I might not come back, but I love you and I wish you guys all the best and I'm doing this for you, that puts everything into perspective. And I think that that's just so important for people to try and take away, why am I going to university? Why am I working at this job? Why am I doing the things I'm doing? Am I treating my family right? Could I fix the relationships with my family Um, if they're not good? How do I go about doing these things? And that's, that's kind of what I hope people get out of this.
1: A certain living with intention and and being engaged in, in the process as opposed to having it happen to you.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So could you tell us about how this war, uh, some of the events, uh, how Canada was involved? And then we can move into uh, the Indigenous side and the more British Columbia side.
1: Sure. Um, war, the Second World War becomes actually far more transformative in a lot of ways than the First World War was. Uh, as I said, a huge number of Canadians enlist and, and served all over the world um, in every theater of conflict uh, in the air and on the oceans and, and on the ground. In particular, in Europe, the, the majority of Canada's focus was in Europe and in the Battle of the Atlantic as well. And so most Canadians, for them, the war was looking east. Uh, and and Canada poured enormous amounts of effort into this, not just in terms of, uh, you know, building up a large army again, which we did, which served in in Italy and in Northwest Europe, D Day through through Belgium and the Netherlands and in, into Germany eventually in 1945, um, you know, and suffered again tens of thousands of casualties. Um, we also built up a massive air force, over like, about a quarter million strong this time, which was a huge contribution to victory as well. Uh, participated heavily in the bombing campaigns of of Germany, Uh, one of our largest contributions. Uh, And Canada's Navy massively explodes in size from maybe 10 10 to 12 vessels at the start of the war, to over 400 by war's end. Um, And hugely important in escorting convoys across the Atlantic, making sure the supplies of men and material keep getting to Britain and then feed the buildup to then launch the invasion into, into Europe. Uh, in 1944 and 45. And and so the, all those contributions <clears throat> on the military side are immensely important, arguably even though they don't attain the kind of elite status in the same way that, that we saw in the First World War, uh, still led to, <clears throat> I would argue, if anything, a greater contribution to allied victory in the Second World War than in the First. Um, on the home front, the war is massively transformative. Uh, economically, it pulls Canada out of the depression. Uh, finally, it, Canada's economy doesn't get back to pre-depression levels until 1940, 41. But you know, our gross domestic product more than doubles during the six years of the war. That's extraordinary. Uh, their full employment is reached by 1941, early 42, uh, where literally there's a job for every single man and woman over the age of 16 and then some. The, then the problem becomes labor shortages in key industries and the government takes a, a really strong controlling stance in the economy, in society, to to direct the war effort, to manage the human and material resources of the country. Our industries explode um, in in expanse and in sophistication. We become very much an arsenal of democracy, uh, and also the breadbasket of democracy. Huge amounts of food, resources, salmon, you know, timber, ore, steel, iron. And um, vehicles, hundreds of thousands of military vehicles are produced in Canada during the war, tanks down to jeeps. Um, Everything you could possibly imagine was being produced in Canada for the war effort. And and in fact, more than any of the other allied countries, we used the least amount of what we produced. Most of the rest of it went to Britain, uh, to to Soviet Union and to other allied forces. Um, And so Canada's contribution is really quite quite important across the board, economically and militarily. Uh, and it has a real a real impact on Canadian society. Uh, it brings women into the workforce in a massive way, much more so than the First World War. There were tens of thousands who came into the workforce. In the First World War, there are hundreds of thousands of Canadian women who fill the spaces left by men departing for war. Uh, and not just in light industry, but you know, doing heavy industry, riveting and machine work, and the government even creates programs to, uh, uh, you know, government-funded daycare programs, for instance, so that working with mothers can actually work in a factory or a shipping yard. Uh, they create emergency vocational programs and welding and electrical and a variety of other things, so that women can get crash courses in how to do these things to fill roles that are needed filled in Canadian industry. Uh, and so it's it's quite transformative for for women in terms of being a, an enlightening experience, and quite honestly. Canada becomes wealthy as a result of the war. War is, in some ways, strangely for Canadians, uh, always an economic boon for us. Uh, Canada's economy is thriving. People are investing huge sums of monies in victory bonds, um, war savings certificates, so that by the time the war ends, everybody's got a nice nest egg sitting there ready to build a new little house in suburbia kind of thing. Um, while their husbands are and are overseas fighting and sending their pay home and and that sort of thing, so economically it's good times in Canada, and we tend to think of the sort of development of a real consumer society as sort of the 1950s suburban leave it to beaver kind of era, but that really starts to kick off in the Second World War, and it's challenged by the fact that there aren't a lot of consumer products around, but. Even still, it's a time when people are beginning to do that, particularly women, really leading the development of consumer society, finding, you know, appliances for the home and, and, and other things. And in part because of that, there is also a thriving black market in liquor and women's nylons and a variety of other, other goods as well that are hard to find in, in the context of wartime rationing and that sort of thing.
0: Right, and so how does this sort of wrap up? So we we're exiting the war, or how does World War Two, and how does Hitler end up uh, losing power? How does Japan end up falling? How does that all come about?
1: So the the Allies are really under the gun up into nineteen forty two. Uh, the Axis are sweeping everything before them. Germany has conquered most of Europe. Uh, you know, from from almost the gates of Moscow to to the Mediterranean and to the to the coast of France. Is under German sway. Italy, uh, you know, is, is in control of large parts of North Africa. It tries to tries to invade Greece. That doesn't work so well. Uh, Japan is expanding massively across the Pacific, beginning in 1941 after Pearl Harbor. At the same time, you know, it's attacking the Philippines. It's attacking Hong Kong, where there are Canadian soldiers stationed. Further south uh, towards Australia, and very soon on the northern borders of Australia, bombing Darwin and other places. If you've seen the movie Australia, depicts that bombing, Um, as well as island hopping across the Pacific, uh, taking possessions that were American or other, you know, run by other countries uh, in the lead up to the war, and and so it seems like. The war's very much swinging the way of the, of the axis until 1942. And then there's a, there's a series of really important battles that happen in different parts of the world in the Pacific, the Battle of Midway and others that helped the Americans turn the tide against the Japanese. Um, in the Mediterranean, there, there's the Battle of El Alamein in North Africa, which allows the British to begin to drive the start of the, driving the axis out of the, out of North Africa. And, and on the, on the, in the Russian theater, the Battle of Stalingrad, which is an epic, long and, and brutal battle between the Soviet army and the German army that eventually leads to a massive disaster for the Germans and begins the process of the Soviets starting to drive Germany back out. So from 19, late 1942 on, the, now the, the momentum is with the Allies. And it's they're driving, at, you know, Axis armies before them in all theatres of the war. It's By late 1943, Canadians for the first time allowed themselves to start thinking about what might come after. There's no talk of peace or the post-war or very little talk of it up until really the, the fall of 1943. And then all of a sudden it's like people, it's okay, okay, we're going to win. It's just a matter of when. And so they start thinking about what do they want out of the war? What, what, what's supposed to follow all of this? How do we make sure the peace after this war is better than the peace after this, the First World War? Because a lot of people felt they won the First World War, but they lost the peace afterwards. You know, they came home and there was recession and hardship and the Winnipeg general strike and people were really unhappy and, and the economy was terrible and then, you know, in the 1930s, of course, you get the rise of all these totalitarian states and the Great Depression. So, the First World War didn't create the kind of peace that we wanted. How do we make sure we do a better job this time? That becomes the debate. So, Allied armies then invade D-Day, uh, invade Italy first in 1943 and begin fighting up the way up the boot of Italy. Invade in Normandy on June sixth, nineteen forty-four, and begin to gradually drive German armies eastward, uh, back into Belgium and then into the Netherlands, and to the very borders of Germany, uh, and eventually into Germany in the in the winter and spring of nineteen forty-five, as Russian armies are driving in and then overwhelming Berlin at the same time. So it's it, really the world is closing in on the Allied and the Axis, and and. In some ways, maybe the, the war was extended a little bit because the Allied leaders, Roosevelt, Churchill, Stalin, had decided that absolute complete defeat and you know a surrender of the Axis is the only option. There's no negotiated settlement. And so they fight to the bitter end. Uh, and so it's not until May 8th that Victory in Europe Day is is finally achieved, Hitler commits suicide, Mussolini had been overthrown earlier and eventually killed by a mob in Italy. Um, And so Germany capitulates on the 8th of May 1945. And then later that summer in August, Japan does as well in the wake of the dropping of two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, and the kicking off of the atomic age. Um, That brings the Second World War to a close. Uh, after the deaths of tens of millions during the war. Wow.
0: It is so hard to like ask another question after that type of information and kind of walking through what it's like to go to war and what it's like to have that resolve and to know that somebody committed suicide before that they actually were willing to ever confess or be held accountable for their actions. It's just very interesting to learn about. And can you now walk us through your research of looking into indigenous people's role in world war ii um what what came about for like what jumped out to you about that why why wasn't it researched why wasn't this an area of interest for so many
1: um yeah it's it is interesting and, and part of it lies in in I think what I mentioned earlier, the idea of sort of military history becoming a bit marginalized and separated from social history. And the, that was developing and growing in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. And there was a real massive growth in, in, in the history of indigenous peoples in Canada and the indigenous settler relationships was a really dynamic part of, of, of the discipline. There's a lot of really exciting new work being done. But their interest, the interest of those scholars tended to be not in the war. Or in wars generally, uh, it was in other issues. Um, people who were interested in studying Canada's military past tended not to think about Indigenous cultures or people, uh, other than in the early colonial eras where Indigenous warriors were important as allies or as enemies of European powers. And so after that, Indigenous people largely disappeared from the meta narrative of Canadian history or Canada's military history. And so, what you get is these two fields kind of separated by this wide gulf, and an indigenous participation in the wars of the twentieth century and and experiences in Canada's armed forces kind of fell into the void in between. Uh, and so, occasionally, you know, one pers- you know, the odd person from one side or the other would sort of dip a toe in and, and kind of touch on it or look at it briefly, but always, you know, the military students never really invested in learning about indigenous peoples and cultures and trying to understand both sides of the equation and vice versa. Those who were coming at it from an Indigenous perspective often didn't read the military history and didn't understand the war effort and and the impact of war on society and and how militaries function in the place of Indigenous soldiers and war experiences in that military component. And and so that's kind of where things were when I found the topic and, you know, starting my Master's in 1993. Um, And there was not a lot To work with to start, I I was kind of writing into a void. There is one small book that had been published by a historian from the Canadian War Museum, uh, but it was very very brief in a lot of ways, um, and there was not much else. A couple of MA theses had been done uh, around different parts of the of the subject matter, and and so that's kind of what drew me. At, At the same time, you know, it was starting in the 1970s, First Nations veterans who had largely kind of disappeared and been forgotten after the war began to organize initially in Saskatchewan and then elsewhere because they felt that their stories their sacrifice their service had been forgotten and they wanted to see that recognized and remembered and they also had really strong grievances around their access to veterans benefits and their treatment as veterans in Canada after the war and so that was what galvanized them to begin to agitate for um for a hearing, you know, and it took a long time. It took through the 1980s into the 1990s. And then eventually, even while I was writing my master's thesis on government policies around recruitment and conscription of Indigenous people, uh, the Standing Committee on the uh, Standard Committee on Aboriginal Peoples produced a report, uh, or was it the Standing Committee on Veterans, one of the two? Produced a, a held hearings across the country. Veterans came out and gave their talk, talked of their experiences, and from that they produced a, port, a report on on these issues, that kind of brought it to the political stage for the first time. And then in 1996, of course, the the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples' huge report on the stat, on the state of Canada's relationship with Indigenous communities, and there's a whole chapter on Indigenous veterans, and and the fact that they didn't get equal access to benefits after the wars that they'd served and been loyal but then you know been let down in a way uh, afterwards and that this was an injustice that needed to be corrected and so all of that was part of the the political realm in the 1990s and that's that was part of what was in, I think inspired me to be interested in the subject I I hope that the work that I could do would help to you know improve or increase recognition and understanding of of the experiences of indigenous uh, and you know recruits and their service and and their status as veterans. And so, I, I went on and started my PhD in 95 in, in Ontario. That was looking less at Indigenous people and more at English Canadians' perceptions of Indigenous people and the way that the war and Indigenous military service kind of shaped how people were viewing Indigenous peoples. Um, and that eventually was published as, as my first book, which was Red Man's on the Warpath, which was a A a great quote that I'd found in a wartime newspaper, the way that people used to talk about Indigenous peoples in the wartime context, Um, and and then almost as soon as I'd finished my dissertation in 2000, and I come back to Calgary uh, for a postdoctoral fellowship, I was contacted by what was then the National Roundtable on First Nations Veterans Issues. This is a process that started in 1999. It was kind of the, the the trying to find a political agreement and solution to the challenges that indigenous veterans had placed before Canadians in the 90s. And so this was the assembly of first nations aboriginal veterans organizations from all across the country sitting down with Department of National Defense reps, Veterans Affairs Canada and Indian Northern Affairs Canada to try and agree on what had happened. And uh, and so they brought me in in 2000, they would sort of been arguing for a year and then they'd worked down to a small group that had actually established quite a successful working relationship, and they were all kind of on the same page They did want to get a clearer sense of what had happened. I'd already done a lot of the research, so I was well placed to kind of step in and all the different departments had pooled their resources their their personnel data files and all that sort of thing and so I had access to a lot of information that wouldn't have been available otherwise and and uh over the span of about oh, two months i i they flew me out to Prince Edward Island, where Veterans Affairs is located, to look at personnel case files. I, I did some additional research in Ottawa for a week, and then I went home and wrote the equivalent of a master's thesis in about a month. <laughs> it was crazy. But it was really interesting process. i I'd just come out of a PhD where that's a very lonely process. It's a long road as a grad student. You're, you get off in your own you know wilderness. A lot of people never get back out again. And, and the only thing you're thinking about is, okay, as you're writing stuff, well, is anybody to care? But mostly you're worried about your supervisor and your committee because they're the ones who are going to you're going to judge you when you finish. Writing this report was entirely different. It was supposed to be a consensus document, which meant First Nations Veterans Organizations, Assembly of First Nations, and the government departments all were going to have to sign off on it. And as I was writing stuff, I felt like I had people looking over my shoulder saying, "Ooh, I wouldn't say it that way. Or no, 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 you can't say that. So it was, it was really... It was a challenge, for sure, to write it. Um, uh, but the, the report itself eventually was accepted as a consensus document, which I was really proud of. And uh, and eventually, in 2003, uh, the government offered a formal apology to, uh, to First Nations veterans and compensation to veterans and to their descendants, immediate descendants. So it, it did come to a successful fruition in that sense that that Indigenous veterans' grievances got a hearing, and and there was there was an effort made to to right that wrong.
0: Who was leading that? Was like was that just government officials? Was that Stephen Harper at the time? Who was kind uh, of at the helm of allowing this to come to like a healthy close?
1: It, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the two thousand three. Who was who was in power? Was it, that was pre Harper? I think that was still. I can't remember who was in power in 2003. Well, I can remember like 100 years previous. But anyway. No worries. Um, uh, really what was driving it was, was the pressure from the veterans. Right. That was really the driving force in all of this, forcing it onto the political stage. And then at that point, it became, important, It became, I think, impossible for the federal government to ignore. Because what, what happens in the 1990s is there's this explosion of remembrance, that's that's sparked by the 50th anniversary of D-Day in 1994 and then the 50th anniversary of VE Day in 1995. Those are really important um anniversaries. And and it's like all of a sudden not just in Canada but all across the Western Allied countries there's kind of an explosion of remembrance. Some scholars have called it the memory boom uh where we kind of rediscovered our our veterans and and re- a lot of Canadians People started to go to Remembrance Day ceremonies again, like large numbers of people, they'd take their kids. That didn't happen, you know, when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s. This was new. It was different. And and one of the things I think that really stunned people was part of the ceremonies for VE Day, uh, the anniversary in 95, was a, to be a parade of Canadian veterans. And a lot of Second World War veterans went back to for for the celebrations and the ceremonies of the anniversary. And there were several thousand of them that paraded through the streets of the Dutch city of Appledorn. And it's not a big city. It's, I think, a couple hundred thousand, something like that. And and they thought maybe 150,000 people would show up for this, something like that. And instead, it was like a million plus. People came from all over the Netherlands because the Dutch remember. They remember because it was Canadian forces that largely liberated the Netherlands. And in particular, as the German army pulled out in 1944-45, that winter, they they ripped everything edible out of the country. So the Dutch were starving when the Canadians took over uh, the lance and and so they fed them and helped keep them alive and and that connection has remained really close ever since and so you know grandparents were bringing their grandkids to to see the heroes who would who they remembered having saved them in the, some in that winter that starvation winter and and you know the the coverage on cbc was was kind of amazing and i think a lot of canadians were kind of stunned you know it was these veterans who were they were in their 70s at that stage a lot of them you know they were they were not the most mobile it was supposed to just be an hour or two i think it took them like 6 or 7 hours to get through the whole town because <laughs> everybody was you know giving them gifts and there it was like the the liberation ce- celebrations of 1945 uh and it was really powerful really moving and and all of a sudden canadians thought wow these guys did something really amazing i, I can't believe i've never thought about this or never remembered this and so it became really politically difficult for the government to then Turn a blind eye to the grievances of Indigenous veterans. Right. They had been there. They had served equally alongside other Canadians, and they'd come home and they hadn't been treated equally. And that was an injustice that just couldn't be allowed to to stand. Yeah. Uh, and so the the federal government, to their credit, uh, you know, the various uh, and certainly all of the representatives that I met from the various government departments were very supportive of the process, totally acknowledging that there there had been major problems in the way that those benefits had been administered. uh, And uh, we're looking for a way to find, you know, some reconciliation in this process.
0: Right. That is such a, a moving story to have kind of that reoccurrence, to have that revival. And I, to be honest, I wouldn't mind seeing that again. And I hope that we can continue to work towards that because I think tying in Indigenous people into these discussions of Remembrance Day, hopefully people, I know a lot of people are looking for reconciliation with Indigenous
1: communities. So hopefully we can have that rise perhaps again uh, through a new lens. I th- I think it's actually an important thing. I mean, reconciliation, a lot of reconciliation has to be about remembering some pretty dark and awful things in Canada's history and and coming to grips with that before we can find a a path to to reconciliation. But I think maybe there's also value not only in remembering those stories, but also stories like the Second World War where, you know, Indigenous and non-Indigenous soldiers served as equals uh, in a common cause and in a spirit of mutual respect and comradeship and achieved remarkable and important things together. Those kinds of stories, I think, maybe we need to foreground some of those too as part of this process of reconciliation.
0: I completely agree. And that's why it's such a pleasure to have you on is because I think that you're at the forefront of this, you've kind of paved the road of how we can start to have the conversation. And without people like yourself, to kind of help out inform the conversation, I think that it's a low, like I've had people say, like, did you hear about how Indigenous people were treated or that they went to war? And it's like, that's the knowledge they have, that one sentence is, yeah. is what they have to contribute. Whereas I think we can can get more into the weeds a little bit of understanding how that all came about because it's my understanding perhaps this was with specifically the great war or perhaps world war ii the indigenous people had to give up their status in order to serve is that am i correct
1: that's widely believed to be the case but that was not actually the case okay please Um, but i mean the fact that you say that is really interesting because it's clear that 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 circulates in indigenous communities today i've been i've been asked or told that dozens of times throughout my career. Right. Uh, it's very widely held belief. But the reality is that there was no policy that required them to sacrifice uh, status, either to enlist or when they came back. Uh, it was never talked about in Indian affairs, there, um, anything like that. Now, some soldiers did uh, enfranchise and surrender Indian status when they came home. And it might be that, I, and I can certainly imagine that there would have been enthusiastic Indian agents who were, of course, it looked good for their reports to their superiors to say, oh, and I, you know, I've got this many people have enfranchised.
0: Sorry, could you tell us about enfranchised? Yeah.
1: Enfranchisement was, it was a, a sort of legal process of unmaking a status Indian. So it was a process by which a status Indian would extinguish their status. They would receive their share of banned funds. They would re- receive citizenship benefits or uh, rights and responsibilities, and they were no longer considered an Indian. But, of course, that also meant they they could no longer enter an Indian reserve because you could not trespass on a reserve if you were not status. Um, And so for them, it also meant surrendering any connection to family, community, culture. And so most people didn't do it. It was a relatively rarely used thing, which, um, you know, the government uh, administrators often didn't understand why the people wouldn't want to, to take this step. But for Indian agents, this was something that they tried to encourage, of course. And so I can very much imagine that overly enthusiastic Indian agents might have coerced or lied and said, well, you have to enfranchise in order to enlist. Or now that you've been a soldier, you know you have to enfranchise, you can't come back. And used it as an opportunity to try and encourage or enforce more enfranchisement. And so I do think that occurred. But the overwhelming majority, the vast majority of Status Indians who served we're still status Indians after the war. Most returned to their reserve communities after the war.
0: That is very interesting, and I'm so grateful that you were able to shed light on that, because that is something that I've, I'm i parroting from people who have told it to me, and so it's good to be able to to clean the air and, and have a better understanding of how that came about. Do you know some of the motivations for Indigenous people being willing to participate? Because you could make the argument like, well, we're not being treated very well, like there's Indian residential schools, there's all these terrible things the government's done for us. Why would we want to go fight a war in a country that we didn't even know existed prior to you guys getting here. So how did that did you learn that, about that?
1: Yeah, that that is and and often that's the big question. You know, it, that's part of, that was part of what I was interested in. Indigenous people are are marginalized, they're oppressed. They're treated terribly. Why would they fight to defend the society that oppresses them? It seems it seems illogical in a lot of ways. And so that is often the very first question people ask me and it's one I've always been interested in. And and there is no one answer. Um that that you know people enlisted for a wide range of reasons and that was the case whether you were indigenous or not indigenous and many of those reasons were shared you know uh, after the depression for a lot of people it was a steady job and and good pay you could send half your pay home to your family or if you had bene- uh, dependents you had dependents benefits so as a means of contributing to your family income supporting both yourself and others great thing and that was the case whether you're indigenous or not especially early in the war when there weren't other jobs available yet. So that's certainly one. For others, you know, a a sense of adventure, a chance to travel. In this day and age, people couldn't just travel overseas. It was really only the very wealthy who could do that kind of international travel. Well, in this case, somebody else is going to pay to ship you to Europe. You get a chance to see the world. And that was the case whether you're living in, you know, small-town Chilliwack or in the kind of stultified atmosphere of a reserve where you're kind of really under the Indian agent the chance to get out and, and to experience something else and to have a sense of venture, especially if you're a 19, 20 year old kid, you know, that would have been a big deal. And so that was certainly there. And and then I think maybe a sense of duty or patriotism. Um, now duty or patriotism might've looked or been articulated slightly differently if you were a status Indian than if you were not. But I, I think the, the word still fits, even if we might, um, Shape it somewhat more differently. So there's lots of shared things that would motivate people to to go to an enlistment center, but there were also some things that were kind of distinctive and unique to Indigenous societies and communities that were part of the equation as well. You know, um, some communities cherished the role and and honored the role of warrior in the plains, for instance, uh, Iroquois societies in Ontario and Quebec. Warrior status was important socially and culturally within your own community, and so the opportunity to 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 go off to war to achieve that would have been something desirable for a young man, you know, uh, f- and that comes from within their own community. But not every community felt that way, you know. Stalo here in here in the and, and most Coast Salish had a more problematic view of warriors within their their culture and communities, and and so Stalo men that went away to war sometimes were going against the wishes of their community, you know, and and were ostracized a little when they came back because warriors are. Dangerous people that are, that are can be a little problematic. Um, so it wasn't all just the same in that way. But for those communities where warrior status mattered, that was something that motivated some people. Um, others went to war because they saw it as honoring the sacred covenant of the treaties that had been signed between their people and the crown. That they were trying to hold, uphold those treaties. Um, and and so in many parts of the country, you know, this was seen as something that was. Uh, you know, for their community, they should be doing this. Um, Still others would have done it as a kind of political act, as a statement that of equality, that they had the right to do this. They had the right to belong. Um, And Tommy Prince uh, was a OG Cree from Manitoba, and he became the most highly decorated indigenous soldier of the second world war. And, and he, he said that, you know, he enlisted because he wanted to prove that an Indian was as good as any white man. And he Tried to lead by example. He never let people forget he was indigenous. He was proud of it. He wore it on his shoulder like a like a badge. And and he probably took more risks and and accomplished remarkable things in part because he had that chip on his shoulder. He was trying to prove a point. And, and he went back to Korea for most of two tours uh, as well. In part still, I think trying to, to make that statement. So, you know, th- those would have been distinct. Rationales for some indigenous people to enlist that that maybe other parts of the the population wouldn't have shared.
0: Sorry, could you say that person's name again?
1: Thomas Prince. Yeah, he he was uh, he became a sergeant. He actually served in a a really unique specialist unit called the First Special Service Force. It was made up jointly of Canadian and American troops, and they were especially trained in in paratrooping and mountain warfare and that sort of thing. And they served in Italy uh, with the United States Army. Uh, he was awarded a silver star for some of his actions there, uh, as well as other medals, um, and then became a uh, you know a, a important leader of, of small unit tactics and patrolling in, in Korea. Subsequently, um, so Tommy Prince is a, he he's a, a somewhat tragic figure in some ways because it's quite clear that for him military service in the war gave him a sense of purpose, a sense of pride in himself and his place but he struggled when he got back home you know that that the time the years between the second world war and the outbreak of the korean war were difficult i think he felt a bit lost uh, i think he struggled in his marriage and and so when korea broke out he he jumped at the chance to kind of rediscover that that sense of himself as a as a war hero in a way and and went off to serve in korea after he came back from korea probably suffering with post traumatic stress disorder um you know, he he struggled again to find his way in life and eventually wound up living in poverty and anonymity in the streets of Winnipeg. And he was kind of rediscovered in the 1970s, um, just before his death. Um, and so, in a way, kind of like in the United States, Ira Hayes is is a famous – he was a Pima, first indigenous person. Uh, he was one of the soldiers who had been – famously photographed raising the flag over Iwo Jima you know sort of one of the iconic images of the United States second world war effort brought back to the United States to go through big um you know fundraising drives and that sort of thing and really struggled with the, all the all the interest and all the all the attention put to him and and ended up uh, becoming an alcoholic and died of exposure in a ditch in you know 1953 uh and so Ira Hayes and 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 Tommy Prince in some ways are kind of similar tragic figures i guess of 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 war heroes who came back and and wound up outside of canadian or american society wound up you know not being able to enjoy the peace that they would sacrificed to help achieve
0: yeah i that makes me think of um i don't I think it was the Vietnam War where a bunch of soldiers had come back, but they were using, I think, some sort of drug, like it was cocaine or it was
1: some sort of drug. Mostly heroin.
0: Yeah, heroin. And then uh, the people who ended up being able to get off it with very little side effects and very long term, no long term effects were the ones who were able to return to their family, return to that suburban life um, and like reintegrate into their community. But the people who struggled with those addictions were the people who weren't able to return home to the community, to their family. and to reconnect properly with the people who perhaps missed them. And um, I think that that is something that you struggle with anytime you, you go off to war, is you're going to have a certain subsection of the population that really develops who they are through that lens of the world. And it's very hard to take off that lens when you get back and get back used to playing board games, reading the newspaper, having a cup of coffee when you've been in such a traumatic place and really adapted to it and been able to figure out a way to move forward as a consequence.
1: And you see that, you know, a lot of First Nations veterans, as with other veterans, but it's it's really evident for First Nations veterans. A lot of them were restless when they got home. You know, that it was hard to find stimulation in everyday life after being in a war where the intensity of your lived experience is often something you simply can't and maybe wouldn't want to replicate in your everyday life. But they, they struggled to settle down into their relationships, into work. Many left the reserve. Um, it became part of the wave of urbanization of indigenous communities that starts to happen in the fifties. Well, it had started during the war, but then it kind of reversed a little at the end of the war and then takes up again in the 1950s. And a lot of those were, were veterans trying to find something, uh, trying to find their way in life and, and, and find a better career and, and that sort of thing. And some of that was maybe a legacy of those war experiences that they never quite were able to let go, right? Could you
0: tell us about how Indigenous people may have, uh, not necessarily just from Canada, but across Australia, the United States, how they may have impacted the war for the betterment of of succeeding?
1: Yeah, that's it, one of the things that I, I looked at in my my research. As sort of exam- like having looked at the Canadian experience, I was curious to look at that kind of transnationally because if you look at the United States. And the, the experience of Native Americans in the United States, if you look at New Zealand and Maori uh, people there, or of Aboriginal Australians and Torres Strait Islanders in Australia, there's a lot of remarkable parallels. You know, these are all indigenous minorities living within a broader, mostly Anglo-Saxon settler society. All of them participated in the Second World War, uh, often in very similar ways, uh, sometimes were liable to conscription uh participated on the home front, got involved in the workforce in a way that they never had before, and contributed in really important ways to to the overall Allied war effort, both, you know, fighting in the battlefront uh and and also economically at home. And and through helping to create that broader sense of political unity that we're all in this crusade together. Uh, and that that did matter to people, you know, um, that was important. And so those contributions are really quite manifest. And, and sometimes they're more obvious. You know, in New Zealand, Maori leadership sort of demanded a segregated Maori battalion. They wanted their soldiers to fight together in an infantry battalion, not a labor battalion like had been created in the First World War. Uh, and that was, un- that was relatively unique. There are, There's a few other segregated units, but most indigenous people served as individuals integrated in. And so their service was maybe not as visible as the Māori Battalion, but the Māori Battalion has a very visible service. Uh, they initially had, had white officers, but you know as, as more Māori officers began to get experience, they moved up the ranks. And there were half a dozen different Māori Battalion commanders during the war. And the Māori Battalion was, became quite famous as one of the best of the units within the New Zealand Division. Famous for unorthodox, sometimes very aggressive tactics, they were very successful, feared by their enemies. um, Took very high casualties, maybe in part because they were so aggressive. Um, But Maori people also had a very, you know, kind of a a strong warrior culture uh, that that lent itself to to this this activity. And that Maori battalion was this really manifested this visible presence of an indigenous. Contribution to the New Zealand's war effort in a way that non-Māori New Zealanders could cheer and appreciate, and and want to, you know, reciprocate in a pre, in uh, in the wake of the war uh, to to try and do better in their relationship with Māori.
0: That is so interesting, and. I'm interested to also know what some of the challenges they faced, um, after they came back were more specifically, because I think of, at least in the Fraser Valley, I'm well aware of, uh, the struggles, the lack of access, perhaps historically to resources, to address PTSD, to, ad- to get resources. Uh, it seems like indigenous communities were already at kind of a deficit to help their people get through perhaps traumatizing events that had occurred and then to come back to that community that didn't have those resources. What did you see through your research in that?
1: It's an interesting story. And it's it's actually a bit mixed because the reality is there's, there's almost no resources for any veterans. Uh, the idea of what we today call PTSD in the Second World War is called battle fatigue or combat exhaustion. And there was more understanding of it in the Second World War than in the First World War, where it's called shell shock. But there was still not the same understanding of of the need for post-war rehabilitation and counseling and all of that sort of thing. None of that was available you know for for veterans of the war, counseling was what you did at the Legion Hall with your buddies over a beer or many beers. Um, that was kind of as much as you got and and there's actually some suggestions that that in fact, because of certain cultural practices within in indigenous communities that sometimes indigenous soldiers actually had more social and cultural methods to heal in a way uh, than was the case for non-Indigenous soldiers. And and a uh, really prominent, one of the very earliest uh, academics uh, to begin to chart the idea of Indigenous military service in the United States, Tom Holm, who's an Indigenous academic, is uh, he wrote some really interesting research about First Nations or Native American uh, veterans of, the, of Vietnam and how Healing ceremonies, sweat lodge, and other cultural practices, in some ways, may have provided actually better support to Native American veterans than non-Indigenous veterans in the United States uh, received. Because uh, you know, in a much more individual individualistic society, where there aren't institutional supports, it was kind of up to your family or your spouse to try and somehow help you but they didn't know how to help you often and and you know many men returned struggling with addiction and other and other issues and so but but because indigenous societies were more collective more communal uh, and there were there were cultural provisions for how do you deal with warriors coming back from, from war how do you how do you help them heal how do you help them reintegrate into society uh in a healthy way uh you know those society, and and many of those practices were still we're still used. We're still practiced. Uh, you see that in New Zealand, you see the United States. And I think you would also see that here in parts of Canada as well, but not in every community because indigenous communities are so culturally varied. And, and so, you know, first of all, perhaps there wasn't that mechanism, but for Plains Cree or Cinnaboyne, there might have been, uh, in a way that was perhaps more supportive. So it's, it's a more mixed pa- package, I think, in, in the post war years. I don't disagree.
0: And that just you making those comments makes me think of the sweat lodge and, and sitting with elders and having those conversations that perhaps those were the resources that they needed within their community that would have helped them get through those processes. I had never thought about it that way because we have such an institutionalized view of what counseling needs to look like, what services to fix problems need to look like in order to be effective. And that's not always the case. Having healthy dialogues with uh, an elder might be what that person needed in order to kind of reintegrate and having those conversations on a weekly basis is counseling. It's just not done by a person who's registered under the Canadian Counseling Association. Like, it's just different.
1: It is, it is, you know, and, and, and one of the commanders of the Maori battalion talked about this. He, his brother was killed in a battle in North Africa, and when he heard about this, he went over to the, you know, they'd captured some German prisoners, and he just killed them in cold blood. He was so, so furious, so angry and And he said he was like that the rest of the war he just he was ruthless, he killed anybody he got the chance to kill on the German side until he got home and and they performed the pure you know the elders kind of helped them through and this within maori society there was a ceremony to to take that that violence and and the the anger out of the warrior so that they could then be successfully part of the community again right. uh and i think for for many people that would have been a really important and valuable thing and and you're right we do tend to think of these things in an institutionalized way and we're still struggling with it you know afghanistan revealed both to the united states and the canadian armies they were utterly unprepared for the trauma And the PTSD that our soldiers returned with. And a lot of them really suffered in silence. The supports weren't there. There wasn't still enough understanding of it. Um, and, and there, you know, after the Second World War or Korea, there was, there was nothing. And so, unless you have those communal supports, it falls to the individual.
0: Yeah, that has got to be so difficult to come back and to have to be your own best advocate. Because I've talked about this before. When you're going to see your doctor, you really should go in with your significant other or somebody who's close to you because you'll downplay the impacts, you'll downplay the pain that you've been suffering. My partner struggled with that. We've she's struggling all weekend long. We go in Monday and she's like, "Yeah, I'm doing okay. Like it's not great." And it's like all weekend you like you could barely get out of bed. Like yeah. you were suffering, and I think that's so important. <laughs> have that and so many relationships I think lack that person who's able to say this is how they normally are and this is what they're going through that's significant and to be gone for so long and come back I think that there is likely with the spouse a certain amount of guilt that they don't understand and they don't want to assume and so they take more of the passenger seat of like I'm going to let you figure this out and whenever I've watched movies on and like movies aren't perfectly accurate but you see the spouse kind of go like I don't know but I don't want to judge I don't want to assume I don't want to force them into a doctor's office to try and fix this. So it places kind of everybody at like they're stuck in the same position they were in.
1: I, yeah, for sure. I think that that's very much that's very much part of how that equation works out. Um and and you know the ones that suffer are the veterans because you know and they used to talk about it as you know people would come home with ghosts haunting them. Um and those linger for years and years and years. And the people who are you know trying to help them aren't trained and don't know what they're going through and can't really under understand, which is one of the reasons why veterans always went to legion halls because the only people they could talk to were the other people who had experienced what they had experienced because they're the only people who understood them, yeah, and so that mutual and it was really important and 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 especially coming out of the military, the military one of the things that training basic training and and the experience come to welds you into. Into a brotherhood, like closer than brothers, right, is often the kind of terminology that soldiers speak about, the intensity of connections that they had with each other in their small units. That's what kept them going. That's what got them through. And then you bring them home and you break that all up and you just say, go home and you're just John now or, you know, Bob or whatever. And that that sense of connection to the group is lost. Yeah. Um, and, and so the, the Legion Hall becomes really important in that sense as that place to at least have bits of that reconnection. Um, and but, I mean, for Indigenous people, that was really hard after the war too because Legion Hall served alcohol. And up until the new 1951 Indian Act was passed, it was illegal for a status Indian to enter an establishment that served liquor. So status Indian vets couldn't go to a Legion Hall. They were cut off from that counseling social connection center that was so important to every other veteran.
0: Unless they gave up their statuses, unless they
1: like. give up their status interesting yeah
0: that is that is fascinating, and so sort of tragic in a way can you tell us about i've heard a lot about veterans benefits uh it's been in the news i think more when harper was uh the leader of canada and it's definitely usually in the news with the united states can you give us a lay of the land uh for people who don't understand what what are the services that they kind of got previously how has it been improved and is there something that we could be doing more so
1: yeah, that's a, a big topic. Um, there is a long track record of veterans benefits. Uh, the first time in the First World War, First World War benefits were quite meager, um, a little bit mean spirited in terms of how they gave out pensions and stuff. They were kept small to try and force veterans to keep working uh, and that sort of thing. And And so in the Second World War, The the people who put together the architecture of the Veterans Charter, which is a whole bevy of different programs and legislation, looked at the First World War experience and were determined to try and do a better job. Second time around, they were learning from their previous experience. And and they actually started planning for this almost as soon as the war broke out. The first committees were established in 1940 to begin planning for what this is going to look like. And, And in the end, Canada's Veterans Charter was actually this really broad very flexible, very generous, maybe one of the most generous veterans benefits programs developed by any of the combatant nations during the war. And, and it came in sort of three different tiers. The first tier was a bunch of benefits, minor kind of things that you would get as you exited the door when you were demobilized. So you'd get a, you know, a month of, of uh, pay that would so sort of give you like, uh, like exit pay. You'd get some money to buy civilian clothes again, because of course you'd been wearing nothing but fatigues for for five years. You didn't have any clothes. They do mental or uh, medical and and uh, dental exams, and there were a variety of other sort of sort of finite kind of transition immediately transitional benefits. And then the second tier were the most important. They were the, the ones that were supposed to help veterans reestablish, resettle into civilian life, and hopefully into a new career or into their old job if it still existed. And that was one of the benefits, that if your job still existed, it was guaranteed to you when you returned. And so all those people who were employed during the war, a lot of women, a lot of indigenous people, other minorities, were forced out of those jobs for to make room for returning vets to come back to those jobs. They also had privileged access to civil service jobs if they were qualified. Um, but the main benefits, the first one was what was called a, uh, a reestablishment credit. Actually, I should back up. One of the, in the first year, there was a uh, um, rehabilitation, no, not rehabilitation, a war service gratuity. This is basically the thank you from the Canadian government. It was based on the number of months you'd served and you got a top up for the number of six-month blocks you'd spent overseas. And, uh, and it, you know, it it ranged a lot. If you were, if you'd only just started serving in 44 late for, you know, 45, you might only get 170 or 200 bucks or something. If you'd been in for five or six years, it could be like a thousand bucks, which was a lot of money in those days. That would be like an annual blue collar salary, uh, at the start of the war. So that was good money. And that would be paid out to you at your rate of pay, depending on your rank for as many months as it lasted. So again, you had money to help you transition in the short term. So in that second tier of benefits, then the first was the war or the uh, uh, the reestablishment credit, and it was equal to the amount of your war service gratuity, but you didn't just get cash; you it was like a, an account you could buy stuff from. So it could be used to get household goods. If you were going to set up a house, you needed pots and pans, furniture, that sort of thing. You could use it to get a truck, let's say, if you wanted to start a trucking business or something, a delivery business, uh, to buy tools if you were if you were not a mechanic or something. And, um, and so there are a lot of different ways it could be used. And that was what most veterans did. The vast majority of veterans came back. They got the reestablishment credit, used that to set up a house. And found work, cut their old job back, whatever the case might be. Probably over 70% did that. The second option, and all of these were mutually exclusive. If you chose one, you couldn't do the others. Second option was education. You could either choose to go to university if you qualified or to vocational school. And the government would provide monthly, uh, monthly stipend and pay for your tuition and books. As long as you kept your, your grades in good standing. And and that was really valuable for a lot of veterans. In fact, Canada's universities exploded in size. New ones started to get built to accommodate all of the, the veteran students who came into Canadian universities. And they tend to be excellent students who are very dedicated, very determined, very focused on their work. And um and so, you know, maybe 15-20% maybe of veterans actually went into either vocational school or went to university. Um, and then the last program was the Veterans Land Act, and this was quite flexible. It could, it was primarily about getting farmers onto the land as uh, veterans onto the land as farmers, either in a small holding, like something that would be a supplemental kind of income. You could use it to have a, to get a small mobile, uh, timber mill or to, uh, start a, a fur farm. And it could also it did add commercial fishing opportunities as well. So it was quite a flexible quite a flexible program. Uh, the main VLA grant uh, grant and loan option was up to $6,000. And if you paid it off in good standing, the last $2,320 would be forgiven. Now, the problem with that is that you couldn't get one of those if you were on an Indian reserve, because Indian reserve land is held in trust by the crown for the good of the community. Therefore, a bank cannot foreclose and seize property from an Indian reserve. So they will not give a loan to anybody on reserve. So status Indian veterans couldn't qualify for a VLA grant and loan. And so they had to add in a special section to that legislation, 35A that made just the grant portion available, 2,320. So they didn't have to pay it back, but it wasn't actually enough to get a farm going. Even 6,000 wasn't enough. (laughs) Pardon me. And that's why after the war, there are additional grant programs and loan programs That are made available to Veterans Land Act settlers or farmers so that they could build their farms into equitable and viable economic um, businesses. And so instead for Indian uh, veterans, if they could get this, and, and in fact Indian Affairs pushed Indian veterans to get the VLA 2320 grant, they would use it to get them a house. So, But you couldn't usually build a whole house. Usually it was like bare stud walls inside. So sometimes they could find a little extra money to help finish the interior. But that wasn't the purpose of the grant. The grant was not to necessarily be a housing program. It did work that way for a lot of other veterans as well. But it all, the, the whole point of it was to actually help establish you in a, a, a way of life, in a way to make a living so that you could support yourself and your family going forward. And so instead, Indian Affairs essentially was using it to augment their inadequate on-reserve housing budget, which was very meager. And a lot of veterans were living in appalling circumstances. In fact, there's a huge housing crunch throughout Canada during the war years um, that, that's felt by everybody. And and so on-reserve housing is desperately overcrowded, very ramshackle in many, many communities. And so it, this did provide some benefit in terms of improved quality of life. The problem was it was a finite thing. And it didn't help the veteran establish themselves in a career or with a way to make a living to support themselves going forward. And so that's one of the grievances that people had is that in a way, kind of Indian Affairs interference in this kind of mutated the purpose of these grants and instead used it to to augment Indian Affairs, you know, budgets. Right.
0: That is very interesting. Can we talk uh, briefly about the experience in BC? Because I think that that's where hopefully it'll hit home for listeners that they'll be able to kind of see what British Columbia looked like during uh, the Second World War.
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing about British Columbia's Second World War. There's really only one story we oh, that you know we tend to hear about the Second World War in British Columbia, and that is uh, the in the wake of the attack on Pearl Harbor the the decision initially to uh in in uh, turn all the residents of japanese ancestry whether or not they were canadian citizens or not in camps in the interior of bc in alberta and some in as far east as ontario they were removed because they were perceived as a threat um <clears throat> and and not only that of course their their homes their businesses their 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 possessions were all seized and sold at a fraction of their value and many of that much of that money never made its way to those to those families and then they were banned from returning to the coast until 1949 4 years after the war wow. and in fact at the end of the war there was a program to send japanese and japanese canadians people who were born in canada never seen japan to japan to just get rid of them and several thousand actually were shipped to japan before the growing awareness of human rights and that this was an injustice that was being perpetrated here led to that program being halted. Um, and so that's really the the main story we know of British Columbia in the Second World War. There's there's very little else that's told. If if you look in the history, um, the broad survey histories of BC history, there are a few other things that are talked about. They talk about the growth of the economy um, in the same way that we talk about it nationally, about women coming into the economy to some extent. Uh, there's a fair bit of attention paid to the rise of organized labor, which is battered in the Depression years, but which really regains its strength during the war because it's labor shortage, because there's so much urgency to, to produce that they win strikes and the government often sides with them. And, and in fact, they win recognition of the right to strike and to organize and unionize. That wasn't officially legally recognized before the Second World War. So it, it's a really important era in terms of Canada's labor history and working class history. Uh, and so those those are also sort of parts of the story. There's a little bit of attention sometimes to the politics. Canada's politics in this time period is really interesting because in the Great Depression the CCF, the Co- Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, comes into being and becomes a real force in BC. There where there's a strong working class support for socialism, social democracy, and the CCF. And and although they didn't gain a lot of traction during the depression, in the war years they really start to gain a lot of traction and support. And in fact, they become, uh, they get as much support as either the liberal or conservative parties do. And so the liberal and conservative parties actually create a coalition government, both to keep the, the, the socialists out and to retain power. And so there's a coalition government that serves through most of the Second World War from 1940 to 45 uh, and beyond. And it is actually a fairly effective government uh, during the war, but. You know, the the attention tends to be just on the political figures. And there's some interesting characters like Duff Patulla, who was the premier in the Depression years and, and in the early part of the war years and that sort of thing. And so we tend to focus on the these characters, but it, it's more old-fashioned sort of the dead, white, powerful men kind of story. The story of what's happening with British Columbians in their communities, in, you know, remote regions of the country, of the, of the provinces, is, is not so much known. It's not so much talked about. So we don't know what if the war looked or felt the same in Cranbrook as it did in Fort St. John, as it did in Rupert, as it did in Vernon, as it did in, you know, Port Alberni, right. uh, or or in the heart of Vancouver. Um, and so those stories are out there, but they're hard to find. They're buried in in local popular histories that have been published at one time or another, Um in, in In a few specialist studies, but there's really very little out there and i I've spent much of the last year on sabbatical reading as much b c history as I you know twentieth century history as I can get my hands on and what I'm astonished by is how there's bits and pieces here and there, but it's it's incoherent it's it's disconnected and it's and it's badly in need of having the story kind of stitched back together because The war, in fact, was really important in British Columbia. You know, it touched every home, every household in some way. Lots of people, of course, enlisted, but it's hugely important economically, whether you're working in the forestry industry, if you're in shipbuilding, fishing, uh, every part of the, of the economy and new industries are created like the Boeing plant. You know, there's Boeing workers, women workers here in the Fraser Valley and creating air, building aircraft in the Second World War. So it, it touches everybody in a lot of ways. There's, there's rationing. So what people can make for dinner at night is shaped by the government and the war. Um, and then of course, you also get what's different in British Columbia is, is that we become part of the front of the Pacific War. When Japan enters the conflict, attacking uh, the Americans at Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, and all of a sudden, for people on the coast, they're vulnerable. They're not. I mean, up until that point, the war was this distant thing, away, a long way away in Europe. And for most British Columbians throughout the war, the war remained a distant thing. You know, if you were, if you were in the interior, the war was a long ways away. But for people living on the coast, especially more exposed parts of the coast like Rupert, like you know, Port Alberni, Victoria, Vancouver people felt threatened if the United, if Japan could attack pearl harbor and destroy most of the american fleet what's to say that they couldn't launch at least a nuisance raid or you know launch aircraft from an aircraft carrier and bombard our our ports and that sort of thing and you know the likelihood of that was always small and and canada's military leadership and political leadership in ottawa knew that but of course that's easy to say from ottawa Right, if you're in Port Alberni and the, that nuisance raid means bombs drop in your children's school, well, that's 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 a lot more visceral. You take that much more to heart, and so the war became much more immediate, uh, much more, you know, in people's face in that latter portion, particularly along the coast. And I'm really interested to see what that looked like. And so you get the rise of things like the Pacific Coast Militia Rangers, which was a, a local defense organization. Kind of informal, it was connected to the military, but uh, these were made up of men who usually weren't medically fit to enlist or were in essential service, like forestry or the fishing industry, and often lived in remote regions of the coast, so the west coast of Vancouver Island, all up and down the coastline, and they were composed of the people that lived there. And often that meant indigenous communities were living in some of these more exposed parts of the coast. And eventually, some more than fifteen thousand British Columbians are part of the Pacific Coast Militia Rangers, and they patrolled the coastline, kept an eye out for Japanese submarines or ships or, or aircraft or anything of that sort. Their job was to fight as guerrilla fighters if there was an invasion. And um, you know that that was a very real way for people, even though they were home, to still contribute to the defense of their local communities in a very real and manifest way. Then, uh, so the war was very much on people's minds you know, it, it brings a lot of growth to British Columbia. British Columbia is 800 and some thousand before the war. And not long after the war, we crossed the million mark. A lot of people moved to BC to partake of wartime industries. Shipbuilding grew from maybe 3,000 to like 30,000 plus people working in that industry in Vancouver and Victoria, Prince Rupert and elsewhere. So, you know, there were jobs to be had. People moved from the prairies, from the interior. You couldn't in fact, the government actually made it illegal to move to certain cities during the war because of the housing shortage, unless you had a wartime written need to be there. Either the military sent you there or you had a war job, war-related job to go to. You couldn't move to Victoria or Vancouver. It was illegal. Wow. That is just incomprehensible now. It, it is. We can't imagine the government controlling our lives or putting those kinds of – well, maybe we can a little bit more after COVID, actually – having gone through, you know, stay at home <laughs> yeah, it puts, orders and that sort of thing.
0: It puts the passports in more perspective
1: as well. It does. It does. And, and, you know, the, the, you know, the anxiety about them in a way when you compare it to the the constraints of the second world war, you know, there the, there are similar things. The government is, is taking a more overt hand and trying to control things in the Public interest in the, you know for particular reasons, and and not everybody is on board with it. Some people resist, some people you know uh, try and subvert those those regulations. but most people most people see the need and follow through on it, and it's much the same as we see today. but of course, the war lasts for six years. You know you can imagine how tired people are now of COVID and this sense of ongoing crisis and when the hell' is this going to end. How about if it was six years of this? You know, and it it got worse before it got better again, kind of thing. And and government controls were even more pinned down. Um, How would we be able to stand it? You know, would there would we still be able to pull together? And and yet, British Columbians for the most part were able to, you know, and continue to contribute in all kinds of ways.
0: That sets such a good example. But I have to ask how did how do you approach this? You said you were spending a year researching. What is it like for you? What is your driving force behind this i guess like do you get excited when you get a new book and you get to read about these experiences or is it like this is what i got to do how do you approach doing this
1: type of research i I do actually and and for me it's exciting because i i spent more than 25 years you know working the subject of indigenous military experiences this is a real change of field in a way for me it's a big change of topic i've taught bc history introductory bc history but you don't have to understand the history in the same depth to teach it as you do if you're researching in it you really have to become deeply intimately familiar with everything that's written and you know for me i i it is exciting i i was happy to have a break from teaching as much as i love my teaching uh and and the chance to to sit down and read you know when i'm teaching i don't have time to read stuff unless i absolutely have to kind of thing because you're just you're pulled all you know in different directions all the time and so having that time and the sabbatical to read, I read over 100 books and a couple hundred articles and theses and math, master's and PhD theses and stuff, and really immersed myself into that, that literature. And I start to see, it's not until you do that, you start to see the contours of the landscape of the literature and where, where the things are that we know and where some of the gaps and holes and low points are that we really don't know and you know how widely separated all these, these little bits that we do know are from one another, and how little they interact with each other, and and that does make me excited again. It helps me rediscover the joy of being a historian. Uh, you know that, that that initial enthusiasm that drew me to pick up history books when I was a kid. Can you, you
0: t- can you tell us about how that came about for you? When did you start getting interested in this, and what really pulled you into it?
1: I was just a kid. I, I mean, eight ten years old. I was always fascinated by old war movies. Um, of course, they were always American. Um, but you know, if we went to the bookstore or whatever, there'd always be the big picture books, world war one, world war two, that's where I would go. I'd go and I'd flick through these and I'd look at the pictures and and that sort of thing. And I, I just was fascinated by this. This is so alien to my imagination. I, I, to, to understanding. And And then again, trying to figure out, I knew Canada was involved, but I couldn't find those stories and wanting to know more. And that's really where it came down to. I read military history as a hobby before I went to university. I loved to read, I read a lot of stuff, but I I like to read history, and particularly military history. And so when I went to university, I had strange, weird delusions of being a dentist initially, but I sucked at science and and math was just never gonna happen. And I was never going to be a dentist in reality. Uh, But I took history courses still, because I loved them and that kept me sane. And and, uh, it was actually, I did a year at the college in Cranbrook, which was not entirely successful. Uh, although I loved the school, and I had a great history teacher there who also inspired me uh donna lomas and uh and then I went to Uvic, my parents decided I was doing too much partying and too much hunting, and I needed to do more schooling, <laughs> so they sent me to Uvic for my second year, which was wise in retrospect um, and And I still was trying to take sciences and math and then I was staying out in Colwood, ways out of, out of town, and I missed the last bus out from the bars one night. I was in with friends having a nice evening, so I had to thumb a ride, and it was about a 25-minute drive, and the nice person picked me up. I had no idea who they are. asked me what I was doing. I said I was going to university, and they asked me what I was taking and where I was going, and I was explaining how I was struggling with the science and hating the math, but it took history to stay sane. They said, why don't you just do what you like? It's one of those, bing, you know, like you know, literally a light bulb went on over and off over my head. I thought, I could do that. What would I do with that? No clue. But all of a sudden, that was an enticing, exciting thought, you know. And so, so I started to take more history and geography and political science and, and things that I was excited and interested in and engaged in. My marks got way better. And I still didn't know where I was going. I started to think eventually maybe I would try law school. A uh, history degree is an excellent platform for, for launching into law school. And um, and then by third and fourth year, I was so loving my history classes. I loved university. I loved the environment. I loved the intellectual exchange. I loved learning new things. And I started to think about the idea of, of becoming an academic, you know, of, of doing grad school, going to do a master's and a PhD. And and I I still held on to the idea of law school that fourth year I was going to do the LSATs and and apply to both. But, it, you know, it was expensive to apply to everything. And and I decided eventually that, you know, I was excited about the idea of doing a master's. And although I thought I would do well in law, I wasn't excited about it. And so for me, that that kind of swung me to And I thought, I'll do the master's if writing a hundred plus page master's thesis is excruciatingly painful and I hate it. That's only two years I've invested. I could do law school still, and and that's fine. But I loved it, and and so I went on to the PhD, and and you know I I loved the process of graduate school all the way through, and I loved being an academic. I lo- I get paid to talk about history with other people who are also interested in history, and that's amazing to me. Yeah, you know I I love the job. I have an enormous amount of control over what I do, when I do it, and how I do it. Um. And and that's something you don't always have in most jobs. So, I've never regretted the decision. But you know, it's a long road. It's not for everybody. It's for me. It was twelve years of school where you're not really in the job force kind of thing. Although I did all right doing scholarships, and I did make some money. But I, you know, I was fortunate that my parents supported me in my undergrad, and my my spouse supported me in grad school, and helped me get through my academic habit for you know the years i was doing it and then i was able eventually to land a tenure track job was was great but it's it's definitely it's a challenging long road to 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 go down
0: Absolutely, and I'm particularly interested in your experience because there are so, so for specifically for UFE. I know their criminology and criminal justice department; it's it's huge. Uh, their nursing uh, at the Chilliwack campus it's big. Yep. Um, I also know that history and philosophy they don't get the love that I think they deserve. Like there are certain it's like eating your vegetables to me. I think the <laughs> the university needs to say. Okay, there are certain programs like philosophy is it's getting close to dying, like it's going in the wrong direction. And to me, this is where the university needs to say there are certain things that are just good for you. There are certain things that are just just that will nourish you, whether you like it or not. You need to support these endeavors just because they're not as financially um, alluring it doesn't matter. These are important. And you kind of talking about how military history isn't getting that respect or the love that I think it deserves. I'm interested to know what that experience was for you, because as somebody who wants to is interested in the topic and who sees the value you you're obviously passionate about it you're passionate from a young age but then the universities are kind of saying maybe not maybe we don't need those courses those programs um i'm interested in like your thoughts on that to Hmm. have to kind of fight and protect something that we should all want like i think that any person who understands the importance of history should cherish that is like a sacred we don't touch this we kind of leave it there it deserves our recognition these people who died deserve your recognition i'm just interested into mm-hmm. how you process that when you were applying and when you were being told like yeah you might be able to do that 10 years after you officially get your protection and you have tenure what what was that like for you were you a little like did that ever bug you that you're like this is so important like how do you guys not see what i see
1: yeah, it, I mean it did. Yeah, sure sure as a grad student, you know, you're idealistic and you kind of quietly rage against the machine and that sort of thing. But I, I I was fortunate that I did actually get hired to teach military history. I didn't have to hide it in the end. Um, you know, and uh and when I applied to UFE, I just said, "Look, this is what I am. This are, these are my strengths." And and I honestly I didn't think it would Match with what the department needs. I mean, one of the—it's a strange game, you know. As you go through grad school, uh, as as uh, as a colleague once told me, you're kind of fashioning yourself into a very specific key, and then once you get out the other end, you go around you try locks, but it's really hard to find the exact fit. And and so in some ways, I tried to make myself into a bit of a skeleton key by doing some indigenous stuff, some military stuff, some sort of race and ethnicity, and so I was kind of I could apply to different things, but. I wasn't always the right one thing for each of those because I was only a partial portion of that. But it, the, my particular weird mix of things was a good fit for UFE, as it turns out, even though they already had some people who taught military history and that sort of thing. Um, it, in, you know, in the end, it, it, it suited me. But to, to your broader point around the issues around liberal arts, you know, philosophy, history. English and and, the, and and some of the social sciences as well, the, the liberal arts education, yeah, it, it's taken a real battery, you know, especially the last 25, 30 years. It used to be that that was seen as a good foundation for going on into any number of careers. And and then, you know, popular culture and, and in the governments, uh, you know, the liberal government under Christy Clark particularly was very much of the opinion that these were not good things to get people to do that. What they wanted was more vocational programs. They wanted people to come out with tangible skills that they could plug into. And, and so they threw money at certain jobs. And so we, and for us, I think in the liberal arts are, we felt often our fight was not so much within our own institution, our administration. In fact, we had a lot of allies there that also valued and saw the value in what we taught. The problem was more broadly amongst British Columbians and Canadians and amongst government officials who maybe didn't see the value in that and who looked at universities more as as like a skills producing technical programs and stuff like that instead of of what a liberal arts education does which provides a lot of marketable skills Um, and so we really took kind of a battering through the 90s and and the early 2000s and and 20 teens i think some of that is starting to to change but the reality is that and and partly we've changed as well We're, we're actually much more clear with our students when i teach them as a department about, look, this is what we're giving you. These are the skill sets we're giving you. This is how you can market yourself, you know? And and we went through this wave of, of growing accreditations where increasingly people wanted to go to school and come out as a thing, a teacher, a nurse, you know, uh, a a welder, a, a lawyer. And if you come out of school with a BA in history, well, you're not a thing per se, you know, you you are potentially amenable to many things, but that's hard, you know. And so you get lots of stories of, oh, yes, the the person with a BA who's, the, you know, been baristing at Starbucks because they can't find a job. And it can be tough to find, often for, for graduates, to find that first toe in the door. But the reality is that liberal arts graduates come out with a lot of important skill sets that are fundamental to today's modern, you know, uh, economy. They come out with critical thinking skills. They come out with communication skills. They can write clearly and coherently. They can speak clearly and coherently. They come out with the ability to problem solve. Uh, they come out with cultural sensitivities, you know, that are increasingly important in a modern workplace uh, and that aren't always necessarily covered in other kinds of programs, professional programs. Um, and, and when you combine liberal arts with a little bit of technological know how, you're really prepared for a wide range of things. And, and that ability to learn, which is one thing our, our graduates do have, is they know how to learn new things. And so most people in today's world will probably change their career once or twice through the year. They won't be like me. Like I, I kind of hit my track and I found my job and then I work on it till I retire. That's not the norm anymore. Most people, because their jobs end or they get downsized or new opportunities come up and they have to remake themselves, you know, multiple times through their lives. And so, being nimble, being adaptable, knowing how to learn and teach yourself and refashion yourself is something that our graduates actually really well positioned to do. And so, they do tend to do well once they get the foot in the door. They advance. They move up the ladder. They find good pay. Uh, They uh, surveys suggest have much higher job satisfaction, regardless of the line of work they're in, than the norm. Um, And maybe that's something to do with being very self-aware and and engaged in the process, you know, of what they're doing.
0: I don't disagree. And I'm very grateful for UFE because it sounds like they've done, uh, I had John on, who's a criminologist uh, at UFE, and he said something similar, which is they kind of just let me have my own little space and they let me do it the way I wanted to, even though I came from the United States, even though I was fairly new to this country and like was still building relationships here, I got to stay here and have like my little niche. And I think that your statement about being able to find your niche and to just kind of flourish to do what you're interested in and to share that passion with other people is attending UBC. That is something I think I've struggled with more is I don't feel that same connection with the professors and they're not as engaged with each and every student. And I think that UFE's done a good job of kind of creating that space for both the student and the professor to kind of flourish.
1: We're very fortunate that we we do maintain small class sizes and it's harder and harder. You know, the the economic pressures on Canadian universities Have amplified since the 1990s massively, Um, and and so most universities have responded by moving to larger and larger first and second year classes. So you get huge lecture halls with 100, 200, 500, 800 students in a class. And as a professor, you can't know everybody. And you know at Uvic, my history classes, my first year classes, first and second year that capped at 36, third year classes at 30, fourth year classes at 20. So I do get to know my students by name. I have a lot of first person, you know, face-to-face interaction. If anything, I I get down on my knees and beg them to come and talk to me and use us as a resource because young students often don't. You know, we have our office hours and we sit there and twiddle our thumbs and and complain to each other about how nobody comes to see us anymore. And and they're missing out, on, you know, a valuable resource of of the back and forth of the conversations. I used to go talk to my faculty all the time and it was really useful in helping me learn how to develop as a as a student, how to develop my thinking. It helped me build relationships that, you know, when it came time to go looking for letters of recommendation, I had good relationships. They knew me. They could write strong letters for me. So, you know, from a pragmatic standpoint, that it's also beneficial to students to do that. But most of them are uncomfortable or they're at least they're more comfortable connecting through social media and, you know, especially through COVID, through Zoom and that sort of thing. And some of those tools are helping a bit, but it's it's still something we I'd like to see more of.
0: Absolutely. And I think that I learned about that more in my my third and fourth year of the value of just being able to have a conversation. And I think that uh, through kind of going through doing this, I think I've been able to see professors as more of peers with a specific knowledge base rather than a different person a different creature of the world yeah. then and like it can be very intimidating and I think that uh, through research on like how people perceive doctors we look at them as you're all knowing and I know nothing and so there is that sort of disconnect you've also like done all of this research you've gone to university you've built a life and I'm kind of interested to know what that journey was like for you with your family hmm. how did you um, apply Approach having to travel so much for your research with with a partner, and how did you two meet? How did this all come about?
1: That's interesting. Um, uh, yeah, it's I've I've always been incredibly fortunate. Um, my, my parents were both went to university. They met at the University of Saskatchewan. My dad was a GP. My mom was an RN. I was born at University Hospital in Saskatoon, um, so I was born on a university. Um, and and so they've always been very supportive. I mean, they're supportive of my sister and I growing up in all kinds of things, you know, sports, and my sister was into horse riding and band and and you know, band trips. And so we were always gone every weekend to soccer tournaments or a horse show or whatever the case might be. And and they always gave us every opportunity to try lots of things. We had a golf, family golf pass in the summer and a ski pass in the winter, and spent thousands of hours doing those things. My dad took me hunting and camping and I, I learned to love the rugged wilderness of the Kootenays and, and be very connected to that place uh, growing up. Um, and I always kind of, I don't think we ever talked about it very much, but I always—I think there was an assumption that I would go to university. I never questioned it. I never really thought too much about other alternatives, I guess. And um and my parents were you know supported me financially when i when I went to university um, and and it, it, with tuition and and help with rent and that sort of thing, so that I, I was able to go to school full time. And it's a pattern you don't see now. you know in our my day and age, it was normal to go five courses a term and you'd go September to April and you work in the full time in the summer. That was the normal pattern. Students don't do that nowadays. Tuitions have risen exponentially from when I was a student. And most students have to work full or part time in order to sustain an education, so they can go two or three courses a term, but they go all year round and it's a very different kind of pattern and way of life and I was very fortunate to be able to when I was in school I was in school, and that was all I did and it was twenty four seven and and uh, it was really incredibly important to me f- to have that support from my parents and and also understanding you know one of the things I was really struck by when I came to u f e Given the background of the valley, it's a very agricultural population, working class. A lot of people are, who come to UFE are, are the first in their family ever to go to higher education. And, and that's amazing, but it, it comes with challenges, you know, that sometimes their families don't understand the pressures and the challenges that come with, with that. Uh, that maybe there isn't always the same support to come from their home life that that maybe would help them get through their school more easily or more successfully and and maybe there isn't the same appreciation for the value that that education will provide to that young person in terms of the development as a human being as a, as a citizen and and in building a career for themselves and i've talked to a lot of my students and and you know realizing this trying to maybe provide a little extra backfill for some of that because i've in looking back i realize how how fortunate i was i mean i still had to do the work and that still had to come from me. I had to find something I loved and wanted to do, and I had to want it enough to do the work. But, but the path was eased beneath my feet by by my parents supporting me. And then I met my my spouse at Uvic, the Jive and Room Dance Club. which is way cooler than it sounds. And uh, and we she was doing a bachelor's in in art art history, and we both thought about going on to grad school. Actually, she had better grades than I did, and was really really she would have done great. But she was also a really good artist, and I had no other marketable skills. And we sort of thought that maybe I should at least go to grad school first. We didn't think we could both do it together. And we worried, too, because grad school, because you become that very specific key, a lot of academic couples never wind up working at the same university. One of her profs was at UVic, had just been hired that year, and her husband had been given a spousal hire at UVic. And uh, that was the first year in 12 years of marriage they lived in the same city. Wow. wow, and uh, and we didn't want that. So she supported me to go through grad school and made it a lot easier for me. I was able to get good scholarships and and teaching assistantships and stuff, and and we made it work and we got through, you know, well. But she also came from an academic family. Her father was a biochemist at Uvic, and and so she understood as well the you know the demands of an academic world and. And that intellectual pursuit and and it was immensely supportive of my journey through it and and uh and it was difficult. She couldn't really get a career going because we moved from Victoria to Ontario to Calgary and back to Victoria. And so she kept getting uprooted and having to work sort of more temporary kinds of positions. And that was hard on her. And she sacrificed a lot in that in that way to help me get through the process. Um, having watched me go through the process, she says she's glad she didn't. She she didn't ever love the reading and the writing as much and, and think she wouldn't have done well, although I think she would have been awesome at it. But, you know, that was, those were hard decisions to make. And we, we don't regret it now. Our life has, has worked out well for us. Uh, it was hard for those years after my PhD. We moved around a lot. Uh, I spent a year in Calgary with a postdoc. And as soon as you get there, the first thing you're doing is you're applying for the next year. Because you don't know if you're going to have any income, you don't know where you're going to be living, you don't if you're going to have a job or a postdoc or what. And uh, and I was able to get another postdoc for two years in Victoria and New Zealand. So we went back to Victoria, which was great. And then we spent several months living in New Zealand while I did work there. Uh, we moved with two, an eight, a three-year-old and an eight-month-old, which was interesting. Uh, but it was a great adventure for us. You know, we we bought a little station wagon when we were there, and we drove all over the North Island and man, they have great playgrounds <laughs> and great beaches. And uh, the meat pies were cheap and the fish and chips were great. And, and it was a great place to travel with kids. And so we had a lovely lovely time and and it was a good experience for us. And then we came back to Victoria. My postdoc ran out. I picked up classes at Camosun and UVic, trying to cobble together enough to support my family. We had two kids at that stage then and 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 then i came up with a one-year contract or a 10-month contract in kamloops but i only found out a few months a few weeks before the start of term in in august and and my son was my oldest was already set for kindergarten in victoria and we bought a little house there and and you know i had to i decided to move to kamloops on my own i rented a little basement suite and i for eight months i lived there we only had one car so my wife had to keep the car i'd take the the bus down a couple times a term and at christmas but it it sucked it was really hard my my youngest he he stopped talking to me he got he was mad that i kept leaving and it was hard to be apart that long you know um and uh and so unfortunately i was able to get the 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 job here and and so in the summer of 2005 we 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 moved to to chilliwack and and uh settled in here and and uh, my career was able to become more stable and secure after that, you know. But it, it's it's not an easy road. I don't advocate, you know, all my students to to take an academic path. You, a lot of people don't finish. You know, they get lost along the way in the masters. There's a lot of there's a lot of right, you know, folks that drop out in the PhD. Um, and then even when you get out with the PhD, it can be years of temporary, sessional work where you don't get benefits. There's no job security. At our, our universities, unfortunately, because of the, the funding shortfalls, have leaned increasingly heavily on short-term workers. Uh, and and so, you know, a lot of universities, 30, 40, 50 percent of the classes are taught by these these highly qualified people who don't really get recompensed for it. And it's, you know, that transitional phase, I was fortunate it was only four years and I had postdocs or, or work through it all, but um, five years, I guess. To, to carry us through. But, you know, lots of people struggle on a lot more. They move around. It's, it's really a tough time. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, we value them as our colleagues, but it's, it's always a tough go for sessionals.
0: Absolutely. And so can you tell us a little bit, it sounds like you really admire your wife and the sacrifices that she made um, and the sacrifices both of you made in order to take this path. Can you tell us about like how you guys ended up getting married and just a little bit about that journey? Because I think that that is the part that we get so lost in when we focus too much on somebody's career is that we forget that they had a supportive person in the background of often uh, cheering them on. And then that person's story doesn't, get told and I had Brian Minter from Minter Gardens on and they have Minter Gardens which is very well known in the Fraser Valley and he talked uh one interview I had with him was he was like nobody ever asks me about like her journey and what she had to go through and and she's a main she was like the bookkeeper of our business and she did all the background work and so I get all the kind of Um, glitz and glamour of being invited on cbc and stuff but her story rarely gets told and when i start to tell it people kind of say okay back to the gardening or whatever it is so i'm just interested to know a little bit more about that journey
1: yeah I'm, i'm always happy to i'm a cheerleader for her as much as she is for me um uh, you know, as I said, it was it was a long, long journey through my academic career, and I was very fortunate that she understood the process and, and the challenges and the time it takes. You know, it, it's a long time to be in a sort of impermanent state, uh, always a contingent state. Um, and then, of course, we had our kids, and, and for both of us, we, it made sense that she wanted to stay home to raise the kids. And and so we lived on even when we got here on one income, and and that meant sacrifices as well. We didn't do things, you know. We could we could afford to travel overseas, or we could afford to fix up our house, or we could afford to do fun things like go skiing or things around home. And but we couldn't do all of those, yeah. so we had to make choices about things that we did. And and uh, and it was, a, it was i think after being home for ten years and not working while raising the children, I think she was a little trepidatious about going back out into the workplace and and you know she tried a few things trying to because she's an amazing artist to to try and earn some money on the side to help out the family income and uh, and it was always difficult and some things just didn't quite work or they worked a little bit but not enough and and so eventually she started once we moved here she started painting murals for a number of years and and she had some success doing that which was great um, but, as we got into our later thirties, she decided she was getting tired of painting painting what other people wanted, and so she decided she was going to do her own stuff and um And she started to paint petite. Um, my PhD supervisor in Ontario, Terry Cop, his wife Linda, was an amazing batik artist, and she painted landscapes. Most people don't use batik for that. It's it's cotton or silk cloth, and then it's you put dye on and and wax to freeze the colors and stuff. So it's very complex. It's very hard to do realistic stuff. Uh, and she always did liked realism, and so she started to experiment with that. And that's I guess that's been maybe ten or 11, 12 years ago now and she's started to turn that into this quite remarkable career. Um she paints, you know, west coast scenery and our travels around the world. We love to travel and that's always been our shared passion. It's you know, we spent 6 months backpacking after we got engaged and in between the bachelors and the masters and we've took the kids to New Zealand and and we've always traveled anytime we've had the chance. The last time I did my sabbatical was in 2012 2013 and that summer we we went to to britain actually and we did a house exchange for seven weeks with a couple from london and uh and that was an amazing experience and you know the kids learn so much we we go to castles and museums and all kinds of fun and amazing things and and uh, she's an amazing travel organizer so she always comes up with the coolest places to stay castles and stuff like that and uh and the boys, I think, really have become more worldly and learned from those experiences. We love it. I mean, it's always action-packed and we're exhausted by the time we get home. We need a holiday to recover from traveling, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. Uh, and so that's still, that. you know, our life is still very much about wanting to travel and explore the world, and we've been fortunate enough to be able to do that. It's one of the things I love about my career is that my teaching is primarily focused from September to April, and I work. The gazillion hours a week for most of that stretch. But I have more control over my schedule and you know, May to May to August. And so we can take a few weeks and, and go for extended holidays to to explore Turkey or Morocco or wherever we happen to find ourselves uh and have grand adventures, which is kind of amazing. That is awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about the courses
0: that you teach at UFE sure. uh, and and what students might get out of those or what
1: yeah. Uh, I teach a wide range of primarily Canadian history. Uh, So at the lower level, I teach introductory pre- and post-Confederation Canada. Uh, I teach BC history occasionally. Um, At the upper level, my specialized courses uh, are Canadian military history. I teach a comparative settler-Indigenous relations in Canada and New Zealand uh, as well. And then at the fourth year, I have a number of courses that I teach. One is I'm teaching this year as a fourth year seminar in Canada and the world. It's sort of Canadian foreign relations, but also Canada and our identity and how we relate ourselves to the world more broadly. Um, I have a really interesting seminar in Indigenous people and in conflict in Canada from pre-contact to the present. That is a lot of fun. And then I co-teach uh, with a colleague, Robin Anderson, History 440, which is a local history for the web course, uh, which is a, a kind of an applied history course where students, senior uh, undergrad students, uh, are, are basically trained in how to do archival research. They are assigned to different archives in Chilliwack, Mission, Abbotsford, Surrey, Stalo Research and Resource Management Center. Uh, Langley uh and and they conduct research. We give them a broad topic, Second World War or a particular thematic topic like sports and leisure. And and they go and find themselves a topic in the archives. They research and explore and and work with the primary documents and and try and define and give shape to a story that they can tell. And then instead of having them do an essay as we normally would in history, uh, we ask them if they can uh, or we'd show them how to build a basic website and then they write Create a historical website with images and content that's designed for a more public audience to bring local history stories to, uh, you know, a public audience made by local history students. Ho-
0: I think I read about that, right? That one was the one that got a little bit of publicity from yeah. the progress, and is still available now, right?
1: It is, although we're, our our website's in hiatus at the moment. We. We initially started the class back in, in 2011, and the first time we did it, we used Dreamweaver. The students learned to write code. It was incredibly complex and a very big challenge for the students, and they did amazing things with it. But we, for various reasons, the, the class kind of didn't run for a number of years afterwards. We struggled to draw students to it. And so we revamped it a little bit, made it a little simpler. We use WYSIWYG kinds of web builders like um, the basic Microsoft one now. And, uh, but for a lot of years, we had to use an in house UFE centered program that was sort of like a web design thing, but it wasn't publicly available. But we had internal support to use that program. And, and so, we're trying to switch all of those, recreate those as websites now, and then get it all launched, hopefully sometime in the new year with the last five years that we've run the course again, all the student websites on on a wide range of topics, on cultural exchange, on sports and leisure, on the history of education in the Valley, uh, Second World War, First World War. Um, and I'll be doing the course again in January and haven't yet decided on what the topic will be. I just set the broad topic and then I kind of unleash the students and they... Go make the history themselves, which is kind of amazing.
0: That is, you've also written uh, quite a few books and written articles. Can you tell us about those books, um, where people can find them, and what what they're about?
1: Yeah, um, in, in history, the book is still really important to us. In a lot of other disciplines, they don't really write books anymore. But for history, writing big monographs is still the major achievement of a of your academic career and so I've been fortunate to be able to produce two major books either as the primary or 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 contributing author and a third where I was a, another contributing author. My first one was based on my PhD thesis and it's called The Red Men's on the Warpath and it's about the the image of the Indian in this in uh, English Canada in the 1930s and 40s. And uh, that was published in 2004 by UBC Press. Uh it's still available through their website. Um and uh this the, since then, I've published lots of articles. Most of that's academic information. But uh, my second major book just came out in 2019 with Cambridge University Press. And that's the transnational look at indigenous people uh, in the Second World War in Australia, New Zealand, the United States, and Canada. And looking at it across those four nations and comparing and contrasting the the different patterns and the similarities and trying to make sense and explain uh, you know what we can tease out of that, and that was a crazy and vast undertaking. It took me more than a decade and a couple of different collaborators to to put together and and uh you know thousands and thousands of archival documents from each country to to work with not to mention all the literature that was published in each country on the subject or near related subjects it was a kind of crazy undertaking, and I was really proud to to be able to finish that off. I worked with uh, it's actually an American scholar, but he's he's based at uh, the Catholic University in Australia, in Melbourne, and uh, was an expert on, on Aboriginal participation in the Second World War in the United States as well. And I was stronger on Canada and New Zealand, so it worked as a good pairing, um, and we were able to to complete that book and bring it out with one of the major international academic presses, which I'm really proud of. That's sort of my magnum opus, and that was that was sort of my final statement on indigenous uh, participation in the wars. And I've tr- started to turn the corner in terms of topics since then. Although I'm still known for that, so I still be I'm drawn into that sort of thing. I, I did a an interview for a Quebec documentary f- uh, company last year on indigenous participation in the war. Um, I just did a um, actually an aftermatter. A uh, section for a graphic novel by an Indigenous author uh, who's Dene uh, from Northwest Territories and uh talking about it touched on Indigenous participation in the war and the uranium mining in the region that fit into the atomic program of the Manhattan Project so I spoke a little bit about that uh, for that um, I'm going to be giving a talk uh, webinar for the, the BC Museums Association in, on November 10th uh, along with another gentleman talking about remembrance and, and those communities that aren 't always included in remembrance, and, and so i 'll be talking about indigenous veterans in remembrance and, and how museums might be able to engage that topic and maybe broaden their their holdings and the way that which they present and you know contribute to the collective memorization commemoration of those events in their own communities
0: wow i would be very grateful if you could send me that information when it releases when the graphic if the graphic novel is available now so Soon, that we can think. so that we can share that with people sure. because i i love that you're making this more accessible for people on the topic of remembrance day I'm interested to know how you approach it or what you think perhaps listeners who've struggled with it like myself how how do we engage it what questions should we have in the forefront of our mind to take the day more seriously why does is this What should we be thinking in that minute of silence? And what have you thought about, perhaps, through seeing all the various stories of these individuals who have given their lives for us to have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, to have all the luxuries that we take for granted today?
1: And our boring politics. Yes. Um, that's a really good question. I, I, I always tell my students that they should be thinking about it, that they should tend. Um, I, I always tend um, it's important to me to attend. Uh, I take it as a very solemn occasion. It's, it's never, I, I've heard people sometimes think that it's about somehow glorifying war or, or soldiers. And it, it really isn't about that. It's, it's very much intended and designed as a remembrance of sacrifice, um, uh, of those who sacrificed for the greater good, for us, for the things you talked about, you know, that we, we are fortunate enough to enjoy in this not perfect, but remarkable place in which we live. Um, and, and I, I, yeah, in that minute of silence, I, I think about individuals. I, I think about those letters, you know, that soldiers wrote. I think about the, the human beings that they were, and they were no different than you and I. You know, they were swept up in things that were far bigger than they ever were. And they were just everyday people, but they got asked to do extraordinary things. In not everyday things. And, and they didn't shirk from that. They, they stepped up. They took it on and it was tough and it was brutal. And some of them died and a lot of them were injured and a lot of them were tortured by the memories of, that they had of those events. And that's a lot of suffering to think about. It's hard sometimes to, to connect with that. And so that's why I think for me, making it individual helps to get you there you know to think about one person maybe it's a family member or it might be a grandfather or an uncle great uncle or or something of that nature i think about my great great grandfather whose name is on the vimy memorial his body was never found in the first world war my nan never knew him she she was just born when he went off to fight and then never met him had no memories of him you know and and there's there's millions of stories like that in canada family stories and so I, I think if people take the time to talk to their grandparents, talk to their parents, are their stories, you know, they can find that personal connection. And lots of people come into my Canadian military history class with those connections already in mind. And, and I think they feel more closely connected to them by learning more about it. So inform yourself, you know, find things out there that can help you to learn about the experience. There's a really good documentary series called No Price Too High uh my phd supervisor terry cop was really involved it was made in the 90s but it's still i think one of the better things available on the the history of of canada and the second world war and of the experience of canadian soldiers overseas um you know take the time to educate yourself learn something more about it and and then think about that in that minute of silence you know
0: can you tell us about perhaps some of the documentaries that you've enjoyed that are on perhaps Netflix or other uh streaming websites that you've enjoyed um I think of like World War 2 in color um I think of um how to be how to be a tyrannical leader it's on Netflix. I haven't uh, seen that. How, How to be a tyrant. And they go through the various tyrannical leaders um, and what made them particularly evil or malevolent in their own right, like right. trying to control the populace, trying to control the people around them. How did they approach these things? um, And then Hacksaw Ridge are just a few that come to mind for myself.
1: Yeah, there's there's been a lot of – there's been a big wave, actually, as part of that memory boom. There was a real turn back to – Memories about uh, movies about the Second World War. You know, uh, Saving Private Ryan is a maybe the most large-scale and important example of of one of the first really startlingly realistic, I think, recreations of of battle. Um, So much so that Second World War veterans often couldn't, they couldn't sit through that first twenty-five minutes of that film. And I've used that first twenty-five minutes actually in my classes. Uh, In relation to talking about the Battle of Dieppe, Canadians were involved in, in the uh, raid on France, where they, you know, made an amphibious insult and were cut to pieces on the beaches. To get a sense of the flavor, the feeling, the intensity, the noise uh, of what that, just some small snippet of what it might felt like. And it can be, film can be really useful in that regard. I'm always hesitant, though, with film because often so much is sacrificed for the sake of good storytelling or creating drama or whatever the case might be. And and I understand it's part of the medium. It has to be its own medium. But sometimes it doesn't always do the right uh, things, historically speaking. But there are good historical films. World War II and Color is another important one. And it's funny how color makes such a difference. I know that um, uh, the Vimy Foundation has, has been recolorizing First World War photographs, a lot of really famous ones. And oh my God, the difference it makes to see those films because somehow black and white is a barrier to connection and empathy. And when you colorize it, all of a sudden these black and white figures become people. And so I've started using these in my powerpoints for the for my classes, and it, students really connect in a in a much real in a more real way. Uh, Peter Jackson just did a film, a little historically problematic in the First World War, but using a lot of First World War footage that is then. The actual moving picture footage is colorized to kind of recreate some of that sense of, of the war and the intensity and the experience of the the trenches. Um, that, that is another place to kind of often, I, I think what people learn is it's less about the facts and it's more about the feeling that you, that you connect and have empathy and can start to see meaning through that to, to past events. Uh, and past actors uh, in a way that, you know, helps remove some of that disconnect. Right. That is brilliant.
0: And I just want to say that I really appreciate your willingness to come on to do work that I think risked not getting the appreciation I think it would have deserved. I think that that's likely a challenge with your field is that it perhaps doesn't get out to the audience that I think that it deserves and that should be paying attention to it. I'd also like to just appreciate uh, your wife's willingness to support you through all of this and your family's support for this, because I think that this is such a gift to have somebody fill that gap that existed for so long. Like, it wasn't a short period of time that there was this gap in knowledge and research and understanding, and for you to look at that as an opportunity uh, to take on rather than, oh, there's a gap there, I can avoid it. Like, I think that that sets such a strong example for others, but also your willingness to go out and share and to share share your passion like I think that it's so easy for people to take that for granted like I'm enjoying what I'm doing right now but it's so easy for others not to go down that path Mm. to for you to have ended up in the sciences for you to end up as a dentist and not share your true passion I think is more common than it is uncommon and so when people like yourself choose to do that I do think that it sets an example but to use the metaphor of the flower again we talked about how our seniors might not be able to share those same stories and so we risk that flower dying I think yeah. people like yourself are coming in as like the gardener to help us keep those roots, to help keep that connection alive. And that's not something small. That's not a small task. So It took you 10 years to write your book. And so that dedication to delivering that, I think... Is just it's such such a strong example for others to figure out what they're passionate about and then commit ten years to that, commit your whole life to it, and have the people around you support that. I think is just a it's a beautiful story uh, to be able to share. And we just did uh, over three hours. We're at three hours and ten minutes.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you very much for that. That was very kind words and and I, I enjoy gardening. I don't think I had never thought of myself as a gardener in that way, but I appreciate the metaphor.
0: Yes. Yeah, I do think of you as a steward for our history. And I think that people like yourself share that information for the benefit of all of us. And um I don't say it very often, but I do think that you are the perfect type of person to start your own podcast, to be able to <laughs> share it through this medium. I think you're an excellent speaker. And I think you you bring that passion that I felt I lacked when I was in uh like... Uh, assemblies and somebody was telling me about it, your passion and dedication to this, I think once a week being able to just sit down and tell us one of the letters that impacted you, I think we need more of that because, and someone like yourself who does work to try and share this information, I think there's, there's likely no one better because I've gotten a lot out of this and I have found myself struggling to engage with this type of material. And I think that you made it very accessible and I'm sure listeners will agree with that.
1: Oh, I appreciate that. I The idea of me doing podcasts, I think my students would find hilariously funny because I am such a confirmed Luddite. I I continue to use overhead projectors and, you know, in my lectures, until way after everybody else was on PowerPoints, and and they used to give me a bad time. I was quaintly anachronistic until at one time, one of the projectors actually started to smoke in class and that, that was that was my sign it was time to actually embrace the 21st century a smidgen but i think that, that that if i actually started a podcast series my my students would be would be giddy with laughter well if i can <laughs> help
0: in any way with the audio equipment with walking through it i promise you it's not that hard the video part makes it a little bit more difficult yeah. but just a microphone and connecting it to a computer i think would make a world of difference in helping build capacity on these topics so thank you again for taking the. Time.
1: My Mm -hmm. great pleasure.